Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture show broadcast in Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back with a brand new episode. And since this is in October, and we're just going to be coming out a little before October hits, it's it's spooky season. It's when the middle of a pandemic here, so we need all the kind of distraction we need. And even though Halloween's going to be canceled for most people because of safety, we're going to be enjoying it any way we can. That means talking about horror movies that we like. As you can tell from the title, we're talking about the 2013 remake of Evil Dead. Remake, pseudo-sequel, reboot quill, whatever you want to describe it as, it is, you're, you, it's, you, it's like a choose-your-own-adventure thing right there. You don't know what you want to describe it as. Now, in order to do justice to this movie, I need to have a guest with me. And Now, this guest is a podcaster that I really enjoy, and he's... He's the kind of person, like, say if we were in the movie Last Action Hero, he would be Arnold Schwarzenegger's ex-wife, because you'd probably put the phone down and let him talk if you mentioned the name Batman, and he is the host of uh, Rose Gallery, and <laughs> hey, do you remember, Mr. Christopher Schrader, how you doing, Chris? I am great. Thank you for having me. I got to tell you, when you started that, what a what a roller coaster we just went on. You started with the last action hero, and I was like, "Ooh, I like where this is going." I have no idea. And then you hit me with his ex wife, and I'm like, "Interesting. Let's see where this goes." And then you brought it all around with Batman, and I wound up being flattered again. That was an amazing intro. Thank you. I literally was thinking about that the other day. I'm like, "All right, how am I going to intro this? How do I want to do this?" And I'm like, "You know what? Because we've had conversations about Batman that are some would describe." Like, I guess general audience people would call him maybe long-winded because of our obsession with this fictional character. So I'm like, you know what? That's And for some reason, my ADD mind kicked in for Last Action Hero. So I'm like, you know what? That's the reference I'm going with. It's apt. And well, I mean, it just happened right before we started recording. We started talking about Batman, went through a whole thing about Nolan and the fandom. And so uh, true to form. Of course. I, I, even to the point, uh, like over the summer, it was from by celebrating my dad's uh, birthday. And I'm making dinner with uh, his girlfriend. And we're like, and my she grabs eggs out of the fridge. She's like, how many eggs should I put in this? And I'm like, six, uh, six, eight. yeah, six is good. And that's how I convinced her to use <laughs> six eggs in the in the dinner and, and that's it's it's asinine it is juvenile but you know what I, that's just who i am I, I will incorporate batman anywhere i can into my life just like how you do absolutely i love it now like i said we're talking about the evil dead remake so let's jump into our review of it right now <laughs> Okay. Now, before we get to the remake itself, I'm going to ask you, what is your history with the Evil Dead fandom or in just series in general? Um, you know what's weird? My first exposure to anything Evil Dead related was seeing the poster for Army of Darkness on the back of my comic books. A lot of DC comics being printed in the fall or winter of 1992 had that on the back cover. And I remember thinking it looked really cool and not having any idea it was part three in a series, which I think was probably a pretty common experience for anyone that's around my age. 
But the first Evil Dead movie I actually saw was Evil Dead 2. This would have been around the same time, early 90s. I was sleeping over at a friend's house, and his older brother had some friends over, and they were watching it. So this was, like, doubly awesome. It was an R-rated movie I would not have been allowed to watch at my house, and the cool older kids were letting us watch it with them. Um, Until my friend's mom came in and shut the whole thing down, kicked us out. But we saw a good 40 minutes of the movie and even though evil dead 2 is very funny at that age it was also really scary and a big part of that was that it just didn't look like other movies i was watching at the time even other horror movies the down and dirty quality of it the griminess that made it feel kind of dangerous and it was a movie that was so absurd in its visuals and in its tone and i mean that as uh, an amazing compliment um i truly had no idea what i was going to see next anything felt possible i had never seen anything like it before and it was one of those early film experiences that makes you go i didn't even know movies could be this i didn't know this was even allowed So I was pretty bummed out that we weren't allowed to finish it, but um, I later had the same problem in my own home with these movies. Like, it doesn't matter what scene mom or dad walks in on. If you're watching an Evil Dead movie, they're going to see something that's an affront to responsible parenting. Um, But the other thing is, at this sleepover, we had missed the beginning of the movie, too. It wasn't just that we couldn't finish it. I had missed the opening. So we didn't even know what we were watching. And when my friend asked, hey, what is this? His older brother replied, Evil Dead. That's it. Not Evil Dead 2, just Evil Dead. So when I start telling other friends about it and we go off to hunt this thing down, that's the movie we went looking for. And that's the movie I wound up renting, The Evil Dead. That's what I thought I'd seen at this sleepover. And this is one of the only franchises where you can have a mind fuck like this. I think maybe El Mariachi and Desperado (laughs) is like a comparable situation where the sequel is as much a remake as it is a sequel. But particularly with Evil Dead, where, you know, they both have Bruce Campbell and the same sort of aesthetic. And uh, I'm sure most of your listeners know this, but for anyone that doesn't, The Evil Dead is a straightforward horror movie. It's basically an exploitation film. Evil Dead 2 is like, what if we essentially just did that again, but with a slightly bigger budget and a bunch of Three Stooges humor? Like, they hit a lot of the same beats, just with a drastically different tone. But obviously, I didn't know that as a kid, so I thought The Evil Dead was the movie I'd watched at that sleepover. It had too many similarities not to be. So I just sat there waiting and waiting and waiting for the part that I remembered having seen to kick in. And then the movie ended and I was like, what the Did I hit my head? Did I have a fever? What happened to all of these other scenes? And it never even occurred to me that maybe that was Evil Dead 2 because no, this is the one where they're at the cabin and they read from the Necronomicon. There's the chainsaw and the deadite and the cellar. They wouldn't just do all of that again. But uh, eventually I realized my mistake. 
what a relief that it wasn't early onset dementia. <laughs> and then all three Evil Dead movies became a staple of my adolescence. These are the movies that made me start paying attention to Sam Raimi, who remains one of my very favorite filmmakers of all time. Evil Dead 2 was definitely the one I went back to the most, but now I kind of feel the same way that I do about the first two Terminator movies. T2 was the childhood favorite, but there is something so great about the stripped down, lean and mean, B-moviness of that original. So they're neck and neck for me. They There are different things I appreciate about each of them. And the same is true of The Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. I love both both of them for for very different reasons awesome i'm imagining like if there's like maybe a scene that your folks like would not get upset about it with it like even like in evil dead 2 when he's finding his possessed hand and he's smashing himself and over the head with the with the plates and like well that's just disrespectful to cutlery and everything of course turn that (laughs) off treat that with my it starts hitting you with plates like is that how is that's what you should want to do um and I, get a, I, I find it funny because I, if you have, somebody said that, like, oh, it's just Evil Dead today, you imagine there's, a, like, maybe, like, ten people would show up, like, the comic book guy from The Simpsons or wearing hipster glasses and be like, excuse me, it's Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn, as they push up their glasses on their noses because <laughs> that's just fandom is. They're incorrecting it. But it, it is curious, though, because, like you, I first became aware of this uh Army of Darkness, that was the first one I saw. And in that movie, like, it's lavish. You have all these kind of gigantic medieval productions. We have giant puppets and two evil ashes. Uh, well, an evil ash, and then eventually played by Bill Mosley. But then I'm like, all right. And I was told by my friend Renee, who's the one who showed me it, oh, this is the third one. There's two other ones before this. So I go back to the first one. And I'm expecting the the yuckster of ash in bruce campbell but yeah. no and like one like the highlights of the movie he's just shaking his friend scotty into uh, it's probably it's giving him a concussion like scotty we gotta get out of here and i'm thinking to myself what kind of craziness have i gotten myself into but as much as i love the entire series um i think the first evil dead is still my favorite because just like you said because it is so stripped down it's so lean and mean and Maybe it's just it's the filmmaker and both of us that we we find out how he made it and what he had to do to go to to get that movie made that we just respect it a lot more. Not saying he, it was an easy ride to make Evil Dead 2 or Army of Darkness, but with no heat, sleeping in the cabin, a homeless person showing up at one point while they're there, like, um, yeah, I, I think I just have to give myself respect a little bit more to the first Evil Dead and the fact that they ran over Bruce Campbell with a dirt bike just as it just, <laughs> yeah. it just sprinkles on top of it. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I mean, we were just uh, talking about this before we started recording and I had said that one of the reasons I love the original, the evil dead so much is that it, it was one of those movies where you could tell, like it's made by a group of friends and you feel that in the film that prior to that, you kind of as somebody who grew up interested in movies and maybe was thinking about like that is something I wanted to do, but it just feels so inaccessible. It feels like something that happens out there that other people are doing. And certainly, you know, not anyone from this, you know, rinky dink town in Illinois is ever going to go on to do anything like that. But then you see a movie like the evil dead and it, 
it feels within reach. It feels like, no, they did this. They made this. And that DIY quality is all over that film. And so, yeah, like you, I have tremendous respect and love for the original one for that reason. It, it really is spectacular to see where Sam Raimi has gone from there to the highs of highs with the, the Spider-Man movies. Because, like, you think, like, you see, like, a movie like Goodfellas when you're younger, like, oh, that's Martin Scorsese in his prime, and, like, he's got so many different needle drops in his movies, and, like, it, like you seem like, oh, he was born out of cinema, like, celluloid birth, like, Martin Scorsese or Steven Spielberg. But then you go back to their earlier movies, especially Scorsese, like, like, who's that knocking on my door? Like, that's a DIY movie where he made even before he started working for Roger Corman. And you say, okay, if they can do that, why not us? And another thing that I, I really enjoy with the first Evil Dead, I've gotten, uh, I've been lucky enough to see that as a 35 millimeter print blow up from the 16 millimeter. Oh, nice. And it is, and I'm so lucky, like, it was a good print because I've seen prints of, like, I've seen the movie Alien on 35, and that was magenta, majority of the film, except for mm. except for when Dallas was in the, the uh, vents. That's the only time that everything was clear. Everything else was kind of shitty, and I'm like, well, this is kind of disappointing. And then I saw Alien as a DCP for the 40th anniversary, and I had to say, like, even though I'm a film purist, I was like... Yep, this Fathom event was a little bit better better than the Revival Theater. Mm. But, so, when the Evil Dead movies ran their course, Sam Raimi would go off to do bigger and better things throughout the 90s, like The Quick and the Dead, um, A Simple Plan, which I finally just saw based upon you and Carlos's recommendation, which I... Oh, good. And I yeah, that, that's my favorite Sam Raimi movie. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, with a bullet, Yeah. It, it really is something because like because Billy Bob Thornton is playing this kind of like not the sharpest tool in the shed and you like going into it I'm like oh is he just going to do Sling Blade all over again but like no he's a lot more complicated and it's one of those things like it's rare that you see Bill Paxton leading a movie and Sam Raimi being very restrained doing his best Coen Brothers impression in it I know it I know it sounds like a slight but I see that as the biggest compliment possible yeah yeah no, I love I think that that film is just the the setup and payoff in that script. It is such a tight script and it is just one of the, the go-to examples when people try to talk about and then storytelling versus but therefore yeah. like connecting scenes like that way. That is the ultimate movie of this happens, but <laughs> this happens. Therefore, I mean that it's just there is like not an ounce of fat on that film. That is a really, really great movie. Yeah, like I'm so glad I watched it during the winter because it was so appropriate. Like, oh, I feel the cold that they're in right then. And so yeah. afterwards, like of course he does the Spider-Man movies and like people have always wanted like what are we doing in Evil Dead 4? What are we in Army of Darkness 2? But as much as it is a fan favorite, the movie was a bomb. It did make money for Universal, so it had Universal had no reason to bring it back. And it, it kind of pissed off Bruce Campbell. Everybody at every convention he would go to, like, when are we getting another Evil Dead? And Bruce Campbell can be kind of contentious at times. <laughs> and which is totally fair. If, he's, if you ask the same question over and over every weekend, I understand I'd be getting a little snippy with people too and i'm just glad when i actually got a chance to meet him when he did one of his books tours nearby and on long island recently or two years three years ago my friend ed and i go to, to get his book signed and we're trying to think the most obscure movie we can bring up 
just to strip him up to to catch him off guard. Like everybody's gonna say Evil Dead, everybody's gonna say Burn Notice. And so we go up there, Ed's getting his book signed, and Ed says, like, you know I loved you in McHale's Navy. (laughs) (laughs) Bruce just kinda stops mid stroke, he's like, Yeah, that's a weird one to bring up. Here's your book. (laughs) (laughs) That's not an easy guy to catch off guard, so that is that's amazing. Uh, and he was pretty much wearing the outfits that he wore in Burnos, Hawaiian shirt, white pants, like he's ready to hit the Miami beach right afterwards. It was it was hilarious. Mm-hmm. And so the early 2000s come around and then the 2003 remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre became such a hit that every viable property that had so much of the somewhat ability of having a fandom was consideration for uh, remakes. So you had so many remakes to the point that even Scream 4 decided to rattle them off for him as a trivia question near the end of the movie. And so what was your feelings on those remakes in the early aughts? Um, Man, you know, for the most part, I honestly kind of largely avoided them when they announced the Texas Chainsaw remake. I just thought like, I'm not that interested. And then I saw the trailer and I was like, I'm even less interested. So I didn't see it in theaters. And you know what's crazy now when you look at the whole glut of them that were released around then, the Texas Chainsaw remake is really one of the better ones. Like that's, it's not horrible. That one's okay. Um, but they're, when they really started getting into like, um, all the big ones, Friday the 13th, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, when it just felt like, all right, really, truly nothing is sacred. Like if there is an audience to exploit here, it is going to be exploited. It it didn't take long to just kind of get numb to the whole thing. And some of them were okay. Some of them were not. Um, but yeah, I think even something like this, even Evil Dead, which was a series that I had a lot of affection for. This did not sting the same way when they were like, we're redoing Halloween. I'm like, please don't do that. And <laughs> now we're redoing Friday the 13th. Of course you are. And A Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, my God. That by the time we got to Evil Dead in 2013, if anything, I think my reaction was probably more like, well, yeah, of course. What took you so long? <laughs> I, I think the thing that disappointed me the most about this being announced was – until they started floating the idea of a remake, Evil Dead 4 still seemed like a possibility. Every other year or so, there would be a new rumor about them trying to pull that together. So when they went this route instead, at the time, it just felt like, well, shit, I guess that's that. I guess that's the end of that run, and we're doing this other thing now, which, of course, turned out not to be the case. But again, at the time, that's that's kind of what it felt like. The other thing working against the Evil Dead remake for me initially was, I mean, it was like, I think just the year before this, that The Cabin in the Woods came out. And I remember seeing the trailer for Evil Dead and thinking, wow, it is a lot harder to take this seriously after having just seen the cabin in the woods. This seems a little played out now. I don't really know what their move here is going to be. And so I know, I mean, it helped somewhat that this was not a platinum dunes remake and that Sam Raimi was directly involved. Um, but then, you know, on the other hand, you hear, Oh, they chose this director based on some YouTube short that went viral. Like, 
what? I'm just saying, like going into this, I, I didn't have very high expectations for it. And based on the track record of all of those other remakes that had come out, which is probably why at the time, I think I liked this a lot more than I thought I was going to. And then also uh, Bruce Campbell being very frank about the fact that like, I mean, look, we weighed this against, you know, there is the, the option to do a remake and then the option to do Evil Dead 4. And you have to consider, well, how likely, what is the possibility that we're actually going to do Evil Dead 4? And he said it was like very remote, like that probably was not going to happen for reasons you already spoke to, Tim. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I guess at the time it was like, well, uh, better than nothing, maybe, and that was better than I expected. So I had I've only seen this one time before doing this for the watching this for the podcast. So it was really interesting. The movie that I had remembered and then what it actually turned out to be this time and where I would rank it with all of those other remakes from this era. But what about you? It's funny that you bring up Cabin in the Woods because I'm pretty sure I saw the Evil Dead remake before I saw Cabin in the Woods. And, okay. and I've watched that several times. I've, I've only seen the Evil Dead remake a few times, but I gen- generally like it. But upon rewatching it for this review, and they enter the cabin, and I, it's pretty much the same layout as the one in Cabin in the Woods. And I'm like, wow, if I saw Cabin in the Woods before this, I would have thought this is really redundant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, and I, and we'll get into it, I'm sure, but I, the, oh boy, the beginning of this movie is the roughest stretch for me. I mean, it, it finds its legs as it, as it goes along and then, and, and saws through some of them, but, um, but it, by the end, it really does kind of become its own thing. But yeah, the first act has a real, like, been there, done that feel to it that it's it's a bit of a slog yeah and, and my feelings on the horror remakes is because I, so I, I hadn't seen some of the originals prior to the remakes and so i just took the remakes like oh these are remakes i'll take them on the face value but like like you said examining some of them like as the overview since those are not made anymore you think of the first texas chainsaw massacre remake um, I love how I had to specify the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake because that series yeah, time, right. that timeline's yeah. more fucked than Doctor Who trying to keep that thing straight. <laughs> um, but like that one's actually not that bad. Like I, I know a lot of people prefer that to the original, but I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm a Toby Hooper purist. Like, oh yeah, yeah, never, ever, ever. It's just like all things considered, that it's it's that it's not bad. It, that's like that's as far as I'll go with it, and it looks great. It's the same cinematographer, which is crazy. Yeah, like three decades later, it's like yeah, I, I can do this again. Um, but then you think of something like I think like the worst remake is like Prom Night because that thing is just a neutered PG thirteen movie. And I halfway through this, and I'm like, we got this movie for free. Why are we watching this? And <laughs> and we said, oh, the remote's over there, and none of us wanted to get up and wa- turn it off, so we watch all of it. Um, but then you think of like Halloween remake, which I have my mixed feelings for but like but i think my personal favorite of these remakes is the hills have eyes i think that one's Mm. superior to the original i know that's sacrilege to certain people but i think that one does that concept better than the original to be fair they had a much bigger budget and better technology to do things but i think that was the highlight of those movies that and it actually 
That is an interesting comparison to this because I think there are some similarities there. Um, but also, you know what this made me realize is like just thinking about, well, why we got such an onslaught of all of these. And it's really pretty simple. It's because from, you know, for the marketing department at a major studio, you get the name recognition but no baggage. Like everyone knows they can just come to this thing fresh, even if they're a casual fan, if they were not a fan at all. It's not going to require any pre-existing knowledge. And so that's a perfect thing for a studio that owns the rights to some of this stuff. You capitalize on the name, but it doesn't feel like this impenetrable, like, you know, the, the look, I mean, the seventh Hellraiser movie is not going into the theaters uh for for many many reasons <laughs> but i mean but it's like it just it wouldn't even make sense such a complicated web had been weaved at that point that the you know the mass market appeal of that it it dwindles every time they just kind of like fart one of those out and and that's why they keep they keep eking out these straight to video ones because they know they've been trying to gear up for the big budget remake of Hellraiser because they know there's there's more money going that direction. And what's interesting about that is like you were talking about the box office failure of Army of Darkness and that's just such a weird a weird situation where it was like we're halfway to that early 2000s mentality of this is a name we can sell and we're just going to start clean. That the original title of Army of Darkness is The Medieval Dead, which is a much better title. And immediately, you know, it, it puts it in with the rest of the series. They all kind of fit together. Army of Darkness sounds like a brand new thing. And to some degree, that must have been what they were banking on. You know, it's like when they, they can put that poster out with that title and that really striking image. And it's like, we don't just have to sell this to, you know, the very passionate, but, you know, very modest audience for those other two evil dead movies we can go on a much bigger canvas here but then that kind of turns around and and bites them in the ass but it it was similar thinking how do we expand this beyond the you know the the existing fan base such a bizarre the marketing of army of darkness the whole thing it's just it's such a bizarre situation I wonder if that was a Dito De Laurentiis decision because they're known for changing titles like I mean, Red Dragon was going to be Michael Mann's Red Dragon, but however, the year prior, they put out Michael Cimino's Year of the Dragon, which bombed, and so Dealer De Laurentiis says, no, you got to change the title, and so that's why we have Manhunter, and so I yeah. wonder if it was one of those things that, because I know Dealer De Laurentiis had, he was very hands-on in a lot of his movies, like he didn't want Bill Pope to photograph Army of Darkness, he didn't like his look, because based upon Darkman, but then... Bill Pope goes on to be one of the most respected cinematographers out there. And yeah. so whatever it is strange. that it is curious with the marketing of army of darkness. Like it's, I, I literally had this, a very similar conversation once thinking about, because I was watching the thing the other night with my brother-in-law and we're playing chess at the same time. And I'm talking about like how this movie was a bomb. And he was surprised by that. And I'm like, Oh yeah, because universal had a, Another alien movie that cost half of it, and they didn't think anything was going to come about. They're like, hell, Eminem didn't want anything to do with it. It just happened to be called E.T. And you wonder, what was the mindset that Universal had at the time? Like, why not move John Carpenter's movie to the fall? Because why would you have two alien movies out at the same time? It's just, it's just you're eating out the same audience, I guess. Or like you're, you're cannibalizing the same audience. Let me rephrase that a little bit. Um, it, it is... 
curious to say the least. And it's just, I mean, it's a matter of expectations. If like, if part of what hurt the thing was there had just been this giant hit with this family friendly alien movie. And then it's like, oh, hey, check it out. Another alien movie. And then you walk out of that one going like, I don't know if I want to be alive. Like, what was that? <laughs> it's so bleak. And like, and, but speaking of expectations, I mean, the thing with Army of Darkness is like, if the priority is let's just get them in the theater, let's sell them a, an original movie. And then, like, no consideration for, like, yeah, but then once they're in the theater, there's this degree of, like, what the hell is this? I feel like I missed – it's almost as if I missed two movies' worth of backstory. Oh, man. Yeah, it's crazy. You half expect them to say, previously, on Lost, when you walked in the theater – and they do kind of do that in the Evil Dead movies, but Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness, they both have their little, like, previously on Evil Dead. And it's it, it's it's so weird how – and then Evil Dead 2 is such a crazy movie that even that part, it's it's new. They reshot stuff. They recast roles. It was just like, man, oh, man. It's just, But there's something so enjoyable about how gleefully they're just like, eh, continuity, schmontinuity. I mean, this more or less connects. Please don't overthink it. <laughs> Yeah, like the the people who are making the Evil Dead movies say, don't think about the continuity and don't think about how many times he's going to be re-released on DVD and Blu-ray. Oh my gosh! Yeah, well, how many copies of Evil Dead Two do you own? <laughs> like, I, okay, like I could repaint my house with copies of Evil Dead, but I have to spend two hundred dollars to get a Blu-ray copy of Dead Alive. This is bullshit. I'm sorry. This this force <laughs> scarcity is obnoxious. Oh my gosh! I remember having to just draw a line at one point about like, okay, I, I cannot own another edition of Army of Darkness. This is it. Like, this has to be enough. They can't just keep re re releasing these things. And Evil Dead too. Yeah, there's a lot of. Oh my gosh! And then every time the technology, like you know, we go from DVD to Blu-ray, and it's like, oh shit, here we go again. I just keep thinking of that line from Men in Black when. K's looking at all the technology that has not hit public yet. Like it's going to replace CDs too. I guess I have to buy the white album again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and my experience seeing this movie here, like I was in college at the time. It was my friend JD and I, the one who he's the one who showed me Cabin in the Woods. So I don't know why we didn't go to because I went to school in SUNY Oswego, which is in northern New York. Like uh, we're literally on Lake Ontario, right on the Great Lake. Um, so. You can imagine, just like type in SUNY Oswego Snow and to see the it looks like the Overlook Hotel. That's that's how my school looked like 90% of the time. And for some reason, the theater in the town didn't have it. We had to go to a town like about like half an hour away. We go into the theater and it's maybe 15 people for this matinee showing of Evil Dead. And like, all right, we're sitting in there. The doors open one more time. We look over our shoulders and it's a husband and wife and like their six-year-old child. Oh, no. And my friend J.D. mutters, like, oh, no. Just like what you say. He's like, I don't want the next Jeffrey Dahmer being born <laughs> in this theater. What did they think they were walking into? It's not like an ambiguous title. I mean, this is as overt as it gets. Like, I mean, the only thing that could have been more <laughs> more explicit about what you were in store for is if they had called this, like, uh Guts and puke. <laughs> In parentheses, no babies. Like, what are you doing? It's called Evil Dead. This is not 
<laughs> this is not child appropriate. Oh my god! Either that kid is gonna be messed up, or he's gonna be one of the most well-adjusted individuals you will ever meet. It's one or the other. I hope to God it's the latter. It's the same thing. Like the following year, when they did a ten-year anniversary of Saw, somebody brought in like their six-year-old to see that re-release, and my girlfriend and at the time and I look at each other like, um, should we say something to the managers? Like, do we get involved? I don't know. But then the first trap started. Like, all right, we're already in. Well, wow. I guess we're, whatever. If he does something terrible in his life, we're culpable. But uh, we're so that so that six year old hung in through the whole through the entirety of Evil Dead. I believe so. I believe I saw them as we walked out at the end of the movie. Jay, Jay just that's just a tougher person than I would have been at that age. Good lord! To be fair, he was sitting behind me, so I don't know if he was like underneath his coat the entire time and just hearing all the gory sounds. But if like. I don't know. Like, I hope to God, like, he was, like, like he's into horror movies and he, he was looking forward to this. I hope that's the case. And it wasn't the parents, like, we like horror movies. We're going to show our kid horror movies. And if they don't like it, tough. Oh, man. I, oh, boy. I, how do you explain the tree? Oh, never mind. <laughs> wow. Mom, Dad, where did that vine go? Never you mind, child. Uh, we're going to get ice cream. Are we? Yes, that's what we're going to do here. We're not going to talk about the insertion of that thorn bush. Ugh. I, I, I know. Like Just thinking about that, I'm just like, that's, none, of this, none of this should have happened, but it did. And so the movie opens up with a woman staggering through the woods as they as she's kind of bruised and beaten up and she's grabbed by two locals they throw a sack over her head and knock her out and when she wakes up she's tied to a pole and a i guess you would say some kind of rituals going on and her father's gonna set fire to her and we don't know that she's possessed they think this is just like some kind of fucked up kind of ritual going on i mean you got the extras from the hills have eyes as, as witnesses to this um yes and kind of disappointing that that never comes back i mean i i don't know i thought that i when this started i liked that it was like oh we're immediately doing something different than the original evil dead but uh and yeah they set this like really creepy atmosphere and i was i I don't know man yeah just it felt like they were going somewhere more substantial with all of this i don't know and then even with the the way that she makes the turn and if you've seen an evil dead movie you know this is like the go-to move for deadites is at a certain point to like they drop the, the the demon demeanor and they pretend to be your loved one again. Um, I just maybe a a slightly more effective opening if Dad did fall for it at first mm. and then like sustains some sort of injury or something and then goes through with like all right. I mean, but he's just so like resolute about like I'm 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 going to burn you and apparently uh, apple juice instead of gasoline in real life i'm saying not in the movie that would be insane <laughs> it's just well, little do we know that apple juice is very combustible we've been drinking that for, for, really, for decades they're really rewriting the rules of this mythology i appreciate it it's blazing its own trail but not with gasoline oh, with apple sh- juice um but overall i mean i i do there are a couple things i really like about this opening scene too again it's different it kind of even if you're familiar with this franchise you kind of lean forward like oh okay hey what are we doing here this is new um and also the main thing is it really hammers home just how like dirty and gross everything about this movie is going to feel it's not just the gore effects 
everything, every surface, every character is sweaty and dirty. The texture of this movie is so it's like, you know, there there are some scenes where it does. It's a little bit closer to those Platinum Dunes remakes than I remembered, actually, aesthetically, as far as having a little bit too much of a big budget sheen on it. And maybe it's just my bias with the original films that I, you know, I think the lower budget actually helps movies like this. But um, but there is a lot of the remake that does feel appropriately like grungy and dirty and in a way where you're just like, man, I can't believe a major studio signed off on this. Yeah. Like, I wonder if like you held up like a color chart. It'd just be shades of brown. That's what you would like. <laughs> yeah. That's like trying to color correct this. I'm like, I don't know. I can't find the truest blacks in this right now. It's just, it's all just like, we've kind of like put a filter on it. It's like we rub shit on everything. Um, and I think the reason why they go for the typical, like the human facade before the dead eye shows itself, because I think it's just for the line because at first, like, I like what was it Dan Harmon always says like if you want to like how do you get the audience behind a character you show one the first one we see is the one we identify with the first and then we see here grabbed by a couple of hillbillies and then hung up to a pole like you think oh these people are crazy and she has to get out of there and they're gonna sacrifice her you're like holy shit how's she gonna get out of this and then she drops the line like I'll rip your soul out daddy and she says that's so quietly and then transforms into the dead-eyed version of herself like i think it's like oh no i like that i like us realizing um the i like that we find out what's going on at the same time dad does i don't i don't mind that it's just and this is actually going to be a a recurring thing for me in the film and that's something i was going to ask you about was there are times where when you get into the dead-eyed speaking and sometimes it is literally lines from the original movie. Mm-hmm. And there's just something about, like, because of the difference in tone, it's something that works so beautifully in the Raimi movies that just feels a little incompatible with everything else in the remake. Some of that stuff really stands out. And something I kept thinking about this on this viewing, this is going to sound like the most backhanded compliment. This is going to sound so shitty. Um, I don't mean it to. There were so many occasions where I was thinking man, this movie is really good when no one is talking. (laughs) It's like, it's, and, but I, and I really mean that though. That is a, I'm, sincerely a lot of the way this stuff is staged a lot of the suspense sequences the makeup effects uh like all of it is it's really really effective it's when when people start opening their mouths and talking that like i i those are the moments i'm getting pulled out of this and um this first moment with the deadite i think this is this is a line that works beautifully in the heightened reality of a sam raimi movie even the original evil dead while even though a straightforward horror movie, very heightened. Um, whereas this one, when everything is, it, they're going for a more grounded approach initially. Um, yeah, I don't know. Some of it just doesn't, it it, it feels wrong to me. I, I kind of wish they had done something different with, with the Deadites. In that one regard, I mean. Uh, it's like, it, it could, the Deadite dialogue um, did not mean that to be alliteration, but... I wonder if it sounds like a 14-year-old trying to sound edgy. Like, how, like, how, many, how many different ways we could say fuck and be like, ooh, it's transgressive. 
Yeah. I mean, there's something about the, the Raimi ones, and obviously it's more so in two and three, where, I mean, these things are creepy and kind of funny at at the same time. And sometimes you're not even sure what to feel. And I mean, even in the original, the evil dead, um, you know, when, when Linda gets possessed and it's just like, this is, I mean, this is funny, but it's creepy, but it's like, it's kind of silly. Why is this so creepy? Um, where, and, and here, because they're so earnest about everything else, it makes stuff like this feel extra silly. I can see that, and like uh, I think what really sells it is when they do set her ablaze, and the Deadite realizes like how screwed it is. Where it just says like "fuck," this is really bad. I'm on fire now. <laughs> like it realizes, you know what? I've done screwed up. And I'm not getting out of this one. <laughs> um, and eventually, the father blows her head off just to make sure that her his daughter's really dead. Um, and then we cut to some helicopter footage because that's how you open movies to show just how, how isolated they are as they're, as a Jeep is going off into the woods and as we're introduced to our cast of characters in this movie. And it is curious here because like, well, we have a small cl- uh, cast here. Like we have Jane Levy who plays Mia, her, uh, uh, Shiloh Fernandez plays David, her brother. You have Lou Terapucci as Eric. I, ho- I hope I pronounced his last name all right. Uh, Jessica Lucas as Olivia. And I feel so bad for Elizabeth Blackmore as Natalie because she's given nothing to do in this movie. The characters, none of them make much of an impression with the exception of Jane Levy and Lou Taylor Pucci. Um, that's that's probably my biggest problem with the remake. Uh, and it was like, you know, there might be people that say like, well, you know, but if you go back to the original film and the, you know, the characterization was a little thin and the dialogue was kind of clunky and like, yeah, that can be true, but if that doesn't excuse it, that doesn't absolve it. I mean, that was still an opportunity here to do something like a, a little more substantial with this one. Um, but yes, that character in particular was just like, and I even found myself at certain points going like, wait, uh, is this someone's sister? Is this a girlfriend? <laughs> Whose girlfriend is this? What is her connection to? Yeah, I really, I almost, I, I almost forgot she was there. Screaming at your screen, who the fuck are you is not something you want to happen in your movie because you don't want people to want to like, why are you here? And well, I mean, that's just that's the whole thing is like as effective as all of the practical effects in this are and as gruesome as that stuff is. And there are definitely so many moments in this movie where even now I'm like, you know, I'm like kicking my feet and squirming like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> and just thinking about how much more effective it would be if it was like if I really were invested in any of these people to to any degree. And I know this is a very common thing that people say about horror movies, but I I think the the characters in this one are like particularly um underserved. I mean there really is not much to distinguish them except for one of the goofiest scenes in the movie when they all meet up at, at the cabin in the beginning and it's like it's it's like okay i've got like 30 seconds to establish who all these people are and then i want to get onto the stuff i'm actually interested in so you get stuff like hey big city boy i'm surprised you got time for 
like small timers like us. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, now that you're a high school teacher, I'm surprised you didn't. Like, and that's how all of the that the dialogue goes. I was just like, oh, my God, this is going to be rough. And you know what? It, it makes sense that um, Fetty Alvarez, the director of the movie, at the time he was making this, you know, um, like English is not his first language. And I think the same was true of the other writer that helped him with the script. And I know at some point Diablo Cody, of all people, came in to do a polish on it. And they said to, quote unquote, Americanize it. And mostly I think she was focused on the dialogue. But even she said later, like, I mean, I barely touched it. I really did not do much. And learning that, I mean, this even not knowing that the the script already felt like something that had been written in another language and was then awkwardly translated and then read verbatim there was just there's something kind of stilted about a lot of this but oh man I, I, it's you think of like what's like the one of the first lessons you get in a writing class like how long have we been brothers as you lead into exposition. Oh, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, big brother. Yeah, it's, it's a lot like that. Like I said, the first, like, 20 minutes or so are the roughest stretch of the movie. Even, I mean, there are flourishes of, you know, things that felt like they had a lot of potential. And there are there are a lot of things I actually do like about it, too. I don't mean to be, you know, too hard <laughs> on it. But um, this is it takes some time for this thing to find its momentum and it definitely does. But even when it gets there, man, uh, the, the final two thirds would just be, I, they would be so fucking dynamite. If the first act worked a little better, if it, if it worked a little harder to get you on board with, with these characters, but, um, Oh man. <laughs> I, I think about what were you saying before? Like, Oh, it's, you know, like how in the original, they didn't have them well-drawn well drawn out characters. They had very cheesy dialogue, like, party down and everything. Yeah, yeah. But this is coming out the year after Cabin in the Woods. You can't really use that ex- excuse anymore when a movie became well, so meta. you know what it is? It's like because Cabin in the Woods was so much about the cliches, establishing them and then subverting them, that it it's like – and there's no way – I mean this came out a year later. They had to have been working on this before Cabin in the Woods even came out. But it does feel weirdly reactionary in a way where it's almost like, well, we don't want to be accused of being cliche, so we just won't make the characters – anything (laughs) like they won't even be they won't even be the stereotypes they'll just it's man but even still like i said i mean jane levy in particular and lou taylor pucci who was an actor man i thought that guy was going to have a career on par with like paul dano i thought that's the trajectory he was on and he still works constantly he's he's doing very well but um he is a really 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 great actor and um he elevates a lot of of the scenes he's in and i was surprised they kept that character around as long as they did um thematically it, it works he really gets punished um but it's it was a very very nice surprise that like normally that feels like that's going to be the second character to go right and it's curious like he shows up and i'm like so did somebody like google image search what a person in williamsburg brooklyn looks like and then just decide to that's what 
his character is going to look like because he's like <laughs> just a straight up cliche hipster and high school teacher. And, I, and I'm just imagining like maybe just his demeanor. And I'm like, nobody takes you seriously as a teacher, do you? I'm, I'm making, I know I'm being shitty and passing judgment on like, a fictional character. But, like, he comes off as an attitude against the character of David, so I'm like, alright, you're being a little bit of a jerk, and you're right, Jane Levy, it's her show, and she steals every single scene she's in, whether it's in herself or her dead-eyed self, spoilers. Um, <laughs> and But I also enjoy the conceit of why they're going to the woods. Yes. It's not just like, oh, we're going after the cabin in the woods, because... In 2013, going into the cabin, a cabin in the woods, unless it's on a property that you know inside and out, or, and you are not armed, or you have cell service, there's no reason you would go there without being being questioned by the audience. But the fact that it is that that Mia's character has OD'd that David does not know about, and this is her cold turkey to get clean, I think is a really ingenious way to get them to the cabin. Absolutely. And it separates it from the original. Again, it's something else that feels new. And I remember sitting in the theater and when I when you get to that reveal going like, oh, this is great because I just imagined this whole first either first half or at least first act of and shit's going to start going nuts and no one's going to believe her because they're going to think it's part of her withdrawal. Wow, they have so much to play with here. This is really interesting. And it they it's like for one scene that's the conflict. That really could have they could have pushed that a lot farther. That could have sustained a giant chunk of this movie. What an amazing setup. I I really really like it. I I also wish they had done a lot more with it than they do. Yeah, and as somebody who's personally had to do things like this for close family members, like it just hit me uh, a whole different way because, like, I'm coming into this movie like, all right, it's just going to be another horror movie, people go in the woods, getting killed, and then this is the conceit behind it. Yeah. I was like, oh, all right, I guess I can't just just write this off as just a dumb kind of slasher movie or just a monster movie. I'm like, oh, no, this is tapping into something that's genuinely people deal with and that I have personal experience with. Okay, I'm with you, Louis. Let's see what you're doing with. It is a little disappointing. They don't go for... They can't milk that premise as much as it could be. Yeah, because, I mean, it's such a great metaphor that it's like, you know, she starts out, she's battling all of these inner demons, and then it's like, oh, and now here are literal demons. Like, there, there was just a lot more they could have... They could have done with that. Well, like it, you could have had a moment like in Nightmare on Elm Street three. Like you could have had a demon with syringes as uh, fingers or something like that. Okay, maybe not that rip offish, but you could have, <laughs> no. the dead I could have totally played on her addiction. Absolutely. You know what, too? And that reminds me that something else I do miss about um, the original was it's not just all of the like you know goopy special effects and how crazy they can go with all of the blood. It's also all of the moments of the surreal imagery, the way that it's like it's fucking with all of them, too. It's not just like jumping out like, bah. I mean, it's like really the moment with the mirror where he reaches uh-huh. in and it's it's what. Yeah. See, and like or the clocks spinning and like uh, like all of that stuff. And I'm not saying recreate that exactly, but moments like that, like surreal imagery. And especially if um 
if Mia is our point of view character in this, you know, first stretch of the movie, especially like through her eyes and like that we've established, she's sort of an unreliable narrator, man, there was, there was a place for some of that too. I really, I really missed that. Like there was, listen, I, I appreciate that this movie really, really makes a strong effort to establish its own identity, to honor all of the stuff it loves about that original movie, but also to say, Hey, here's some elements that are maybe a little dated. Now we're going to go in a different direction. I like that. I like that. It feels like its own thing. Um, that is one element I I wish had carried over. It's just something that makes that first one, well, really the all the original three, um, and the TV show. It's it's what separates it from being a more straightforward supernatural horror thing like that. There was there's just that added dimension to the Deadites that we don't really get here. Yeah, and it's so funny that you mentioned all the the gags with the the cabin itself being its own character and it's literally fucking with all the it's with ash and everything to the point that like a friend of mine texted me like in the one like the first leg of this pandemic asked me so how you doing dude and i just said the clip of everything laughing at ash in evil dead 2 right. and he's like how you doing being, how's your quarantine and he's like he responds oh that good huh and i'm like i'm so glad i don't have any uh, stuff the deer on my wall because this would be really fucked up because I just imagine that shit laughing at me and so Mia makes a promise that she pours out her heroin into the well and like we've had a nice little nod to the Oldsmobile being buried like half buried behind the cabin she's wearing a Michigan State yeah. uh, hoodie and we're like okay we're gonna be fine everything's gonna be cool and then hard cut next scene and it's hell as if she's in a rehab and she's going through withdrawals heavily i feel like it's maybe i don't know i'm i mean glad that it gets into it but i don't know maybe you could have had more time to descent into her with withdrawals i don't know i'm conflicted on the hard cut to that uh yeah i guess it is kind of a lot of ground to cover um when it's like when we've got all of this other stuff that they're waiting to get to that they know we're waiting to get to. Um, I hadn't thought of it, but yeah, I don't know. I, I did kind of like that part. The only thing is when she's having the freak out about that smell, that smell, can't you smell that? And no one else can. When we find out what she's smelling, like there, <laughs> there is, when it comes to suspension of disbelief, especially in horror movies, I will go with so much, <laughs> so much. Uh, this is like, this was like the one part of the movie where just like sitting on the couch, shaking my head like, no. No, uh-uh, not even a little. This is crazy. Uh, unless all of the the dead cats that are being hung upside down, that was part of the ritual, unless they were filtered with, like, the seven little air fresheners stuck up there with I them. I mean, no, it's like, well, and this actually, it, it speaks to something else about these early moments and with Mia's withdrawal and everything going on. Her brother, David, says from the get-go like hey i appreciate what the rest of you are trying to do but if she tells me she wants to bail i'm getting her out of here that's where he's starting from and then it's like just a scene or two later when they're checking out the basement and they come across the, the, this murder dungeon <laughs> of like 30 dead cats and he's like, oh, well, I guess somebody just doesn't like cats. Hey, don't freak out about this. Let's not make this a big deal. No, <laughs> no, that it's it's time to go. <laughs> We're done. And it's like and 
all there's just something really awkward about some of these early moments and the way he shifts from like if she says so we're getting out of here to then all of a sudden being like no mia we made a promise and this is what's happening and like you never i don't know man it feels like he should be more resolute than anyone and then if you're also going to have the reveal of here's all the shit in the cellar and like congratulations you've one upped the ick factor on this from the original in a very big way but it's also there's something more plausible like in the original what they find is this you know creepy book of the dead and a dagger and a shotgun and like what was going on in this basement that's kind of weird it's a little creepy but it's not like hey it's time to run screaming <laughs> this this it just feels like this is a little this is a little overboard for you know whatever tone they're trying to establish here this is a moment of like grab your sister and go like there is uh there is some there's some foul shit taking place in your family's cabin yeah the unibobber has taken residence in your cabin and you don't know when he's coming back. Yeah, you yeah. shouldn't get out of there. I'm not. How do you like? And you look at these cats, and it's like, well, I guess they've been here for a while. But I don't know. Like, the, like is this years worth of decomposition, or is this weeks? Is this days? You know what? Why even stick around <laughs> to find out? Like, this is man. There, yeah. There, there was a different way that could have that could have played out. And there's just a lot of. It feels like characters are ping ponging with, like, um. We should stay. We should go. Don't touch that. And then in the next scene, I'm the one cutting it open and reading it. Where it was just, it instead of like having that flip-flopping, just like, just give one character. Here's the guy that's interested and wants to stay. Here's the guy that's being sensible and, and trying to get the hell out. But like, but just be consistent. It, it changes from scene to scene based on what the story is going to require. And I, and I guess to quote Scream 4, like, I think you're overthinking it. Am I or did somebody who wrote this underthink this? Um, I know it sounds like we're being mean to this movie here, and we're not. I just feel like if you're going to update this and you're going to be grounded, you want to see this as legitimate and real as possible, you have to step like, okay, you have a different threshold of plausible deniability with the audience. Like, like the first one, it is sort of fantastical like even this one is fantastical too but that one is so over the top you're in a heightened reality you're willing to go a lot further than you would with this movie and i guess like the idea of like oh we're gonna use rhyming structure with our things we're gonna like one scene they're gonna win this argument the next scene they're gonna lose this argument like okay if you want to have that kind of idea but like you said they should be consistent like okay we should not touch that book but I'm going to touch that book. It is a little head-scratchery. It's just like, I don't know what they were thinking with that. Now, you can just definitely streamline this first act. And yeah, I agree. I, I don't want to sound like I'm being way too hard on this or unfair, but it's only because like there are things in this movie that work so well. There is stuff I like in this so much. It just breaks my heart a little bit that it was like, I it would play even better if, you know, the first act of this movie, to me, it just feels like for the most part, maybe with the exception of Mia, it just kind of feels like they don't know these characters. And I'm not looking for like, this doesn't have to be an Aaron Sorkin movie. I'm not looking for anything like crazy nuanced. I'm saying it's just like a base level. I just, I don't think they know these characters. 
And this is written by David Mamet. Like, Alec Baldwin come in and says, I'm from Mission Murray, and I'm telling you to get the fuck out of this cabin here. <laughs> um, but Eric decides, like, it's like in every horror movie, like, um, this is wrapped in a garbage bag with barbed wire. Clearly, they want me to open this. I understand curiosity is a hell of a thing, but at that point, amongst with all the dead cats, I would not touch that. I'm like, all right, we're going to take this, we're going to put this down the well, and we're not going to touch <laughs> that. However, he opens it up. Yeah, can you, like, just think about the fact that, like, look at everything in this cellar they didn't wrap and cover in barbed wire. Look how much is just out in the open. There is something worse than this. Like, <laughs> why would you even go anywhere near the thing that these people, the people that decorate their space in cat carcasses, like, whatever they're hiding, I mean, <laughs> no. Did you miss the the face on the Necronomicon? No, I guess I, I guess I have. What was the face on the Necronomicon? No, no, no. I'm saying like because the original one, like this one, is just like skin right, stitched right, yeah. together. The original one kind of has the face. Yes. The, the you know what actually what killed me about the Book of the Dead, which or like I don't hate, I don't mind the new design actually, but um, what I had totally forgotten about was when he first opens it. Because, you know, you've got all the drawings and everything in there, which are awesome. Um, but there's also a lot of, like, the, the scribbling in there. Like, the somebody's made notes. And the first thing, when he opens it, in blood, it just says, hi. <laughs> <laughs> that that would have made me laugh. I'm just like, oh, hey, what's up? It's a courteous book of the dead. Okay. Like, first, you must address the ball. All right. Hello, book of the dead. <laughs> You know, the decision to turn the Necronomicon into an animated Mr. DNA type <laughs> character, that was a, I, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. That was a weird choice. <laughs> uh, Deadite DNA. That's how we're bringing back these characters. Um, and so, yeah, like, don't read this. Don't write this. Don't touch it. Well, I gotta keep turning here. And so, and then he decides to read the incarnations out loud, which causes the evil spirit to uh, erupt pretty much and we get the classic pov steady cam i guess in this version flying through the the woods as mia's outside in the storm and then she violently violently vomits because of it and then she sees the demon in the woods so i guess the one that she sees is that what we've been been chased by the entire series question mark Huh. Well, I mean, isn't it's not the girl from the opening? Oh, it might be the girl from the opening. You might be right there. In which case, we're already writing a brand new backstory for everything than we were in the. And yeah, that's kind of the weird thing about this is I know they had said it's like well, and like you said in the intro, pick your poison. Is it a remake? Yeah. Is it a sequel? Eh, sort of. Um, that. There is some connective tissue in there um, that, God, everything. It's so hard not to make puns with with all of this. Um, there, there's a lot of connective tissue all over this movie. Um, <laughs> I didn't even think about that. But, you know, like I, the the Oldsmobile, it's not just a cute reference. That was like Fetty Alvarez said, like, that's Ash's car that it's left behind. This is the same cabin, that there's something about this that draws these people here. And, you know, that is an awesome idea. The idea that, like, 
almost a silent hill type thing where you're drawn to this location and then based on who you are as a person, that's going to reflect and change the experience that you have there. So there was Ash's version of this and now this is how it all looks for Mia. So the Deadites are going to look a little different. They might behave a little different. This is her unique experience with this location that she was drawn to for the, you know, that it called to her somehow. That's, that's a really, really, really cool idea. Um, that's not totally where they go with it. It was just something that quote made me think of, but I know after this came out, they were saying, look, we want to do a sequel to this movie. But eventually, the end game here is we would like to have her join up with Ash. We want to connect the two, not the two franchises, the same franchises, but these two iterations of the franchise. And I just thought, like, that is going to be one hell of a needle to thread tonally. Like, to make it feel like it takes place in the world of this movie, the remake, and then also bring in all of these elements from the original films. Like how on earth is that going to work? Where to me, I walked out of this movie feeling like even with the, like after credits thing going like, I mean, they kind of definitively put their foot down and established this as something totally different. So it's just, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's weird to consider how they ever thought they were going to marry the two. And that's recent. They were still, Fetty Alvarez was still talking about that just a couple of years ago that, you know, that intention. And I don't think we're, we're well, we're obviously not going to see that play out. Bruce Campbell retired from playing the character. But, um, yeah, I don't know. This one really seemed to be writing its own path. So then the touches they did throw in, it's like, so this is Ash's Oldsmobile. Also, David and Mia also have this magnifying glass necklace that means something to them. It's just like, both of these things cannot be true. (laughs) Like it's, we're either redoing stuff from the first movie or we're doing what's like in fashion now, which is where you, uh, you Trojan horse in a remake under the guise of it being a sequel. Like the, you know, with the recent Halloween movie or Jurassic world, where it's like, we're not going to discount anything that happened before, but we're definitely starting a brand new thing here at the same time this one is like it exists in this weird in between area where it's like it is connected to those movies but also no also we're we're redoing this and uh but i don't know you know what who cares it fits in with the whole every evil dead movie has been that way to some extent evil dead 2 was like i mean yeah is this a remake sure is it a sequel okay if yeah however you want to watch it and then army of darkness it's like is this we're going to contradict some things. I don't know. Quit being a nerd about it. Let's just go. <laughs> 30 years later, and we're still bitching about it, trying to, trying to connect the tissues here. We look like Charlie Day and Always Sunny trying to put all these things together. Um, but a few things. One, um, if this cabin like changes his personality to different individuals going there, like I'm just trying to imagine what it would look like if, uh, if it was occupied by Elon, uh, Elon Musk. I'm like, what? See? The possibilities, Tim. This is a this is a sustainable franchise. It's like it's like certain things carry over, but we turn it into an anthology thing where oh no, this could work. <laughs> it's just him being crushed by his own floating car that he shot into space. That's the thing that happens to him the entire time. Um, but also, like okay, say if we, they did marry the two franchises or series, I should say, of 
Sam Raimi's Evil Dead and Fetty Alvarez's Evil Dead. But they don't change the photography for each character. So Ash has got three-point lighting. But we cut to Mia. It's all just really dark and everything. We never see him in a master shot. They're always just kind of literally kept in two separate worlds, even though they're in the same location. I'd just be like... I mean, see, that's it. But that, to me, is like... That really does feel like how it would feel to watch that movie. It's just like you are each in a different film. And when you're saying that, like the kind of they can't decide on what lane they're in. I'm just reminded of Prometheus. Oh, sure. Yeah. Because it was like initially supposed to start as just a straight up prequel. And then somebody said, like, you know, we could probably spin this off. And Ridley Scott was like, I guess we can do that. And then then they did their own things. And much to the chagrin of some people, they don't like where Alien Covenant landed. And, I mean, Alien Covenant, like, I had one of those, like, gut... uh, I was laughing so hard at the end of that movie because, like, it looks like Michael Fassbender has, like, an evil gasm when he reveals that he's the real evil David at the end of that movie. I am laughing so loud in the theater. Like, I I sound like Max... uh, Katie and uh, Cape Fear. It was obnoxious, <laughs> but it is strange. Like it, it's kind of frustrating. You feel like Freddie Edwards should have picked the lane and stuck to it. Well, it's not. It's definitely not as egregious as Prometheus. And I think the ultimately the way I can just kind of make peace with it. I mean, it's two reasons. One, it's like I said, continuity. They've always been real loosey goosey with it in these movies. This one, because it's never anything super explicit, the stuff that is there, you can just sort of write off or treat as like the kind of acute, just like wink at the fans. Like, you know, there was nothing about me, like any part of me the first time I saw this that thought that is literally Ash's car. It was just like, well, of course, the Oldsmobile's got to be in here somewhere. Like, uh, of course. So fine. That's a perfectly acceptable way. It's like you get to treat that stuff as sort of an Easter egg or a reference back to um, the original series. There, There isn't a whole lot that it, it makes you feel like, oh, my gosh, this was like a backdoor sequel the entire time. I think had this kept going if they had made a proper sequel to the remake or whatever like it would have become more of an issue but as is like a lot of that stuff it it, to me it was so it was actually really surprising to read that they had considered this as like i i mean technically this is a follow-up just like wow okay huh but it's like you you had a whole different you changed so much about the setup and huh okay yeah, it really is strange, but Mia does the most rational thing anybody should be doing right now, and she literally steals the car of Eric, and when everybody refuses to heed her warning that there's something out in the woods, because they think it's just withdrawal um, hallucinations, so she steals his uh, Taurus station wagon and tears ass through the woods, However, in true horror movie fashion, she thinks she sees something in the middle of the road, so she jerks the wheel and lands it into a giant ditch. And while she gets out of the car, um, this is where we get the, I guess you could say, reprise of what happens in the first one where we have the trees, oh, sexual assault. Yeah, yeah. And I know it was, you know, okay, of the, the three guys involved with the original series sam raimi bruce campbell rob tappert that it was rob tappert i guess was the one that really pushed for if we're doing a remake that scene 
has to go in there. Um, and as early as Evil Dead 2, Sam Raimi was already saying he regretted putting that moment in the first film. And even though it does fit with kind of like the exploitation thing, you know, like I said, that's how that movie feels. The, the first, the original Evil Dead feels like Last House on the Left, I Spit on Your Grave, um, but with a supernatural element. Mm-hmm. I mean, it feels like one of those sleazy exploitation movies. Um, and so in some way, you know, the, gosh, I guess it kind of, oh man, all I know is Sam Raimi later said, look, I am not a filmmaker that sets out to offend anyone. That's never my intention. So I, that was a mistake. Like I, that I would not do that now. And he chalked it up to the fact that like, I was like 19, 20 years old when I made that movie. It, it, that was, I, I misjudged how that was going to play. But be, of course it became a very, very notorious scene. It's so weird. I would never have walked out of this remake going like, that was pretty good. Hey, how come no one got raped by a tree? Like that's, <laughs> it's, it's not like, it's not the T-Rex in a Jurassic Park movie. It's not the thing that it's like, if you don't include it, the fans are going to go crazy. And the thing that really gets me about it actually is in both movies, that scene, and even though in the original Evil Dead, it is properly creepy and there is it's pretty wild the way they shot all of it. Um, both of those scenes feel slightly out of place with the rest of the film surrounding them. And so I, you know, I just, I guess I do not feel as, it has nothing to do with being offended. I'm not going to tell what people, I'm not going to tell anyone what they should or shouldn't be offended by. I'm just saying like, even just taking a step back, like I, I definitely do not feel as passionately as, as that producer does that this is something that had to be in the movie. I think it just raises question of Robert Tapper's, personality that he felt that was necessary for this movie it just kind of raises questions like why are you so insistent on this sir um, and to make it worse like conceptually to make it to go the extra step like oh man that is ugh. <laughs> oh, and you're right because Raimi was brought up on obscenity charges in england and that's why this movie was declared a video nasty and he realized it was an indefensible choice for that movie so it makes sense why when we got around to Evil Dead 2 that that was cut out. That and we have more Three Stooges shtick in there. I mean, I guess like the closest thing to anything sexual in the second one is that the stop motion version of his girlfriend is topless at one point, and it's it's a mannequin, and so it's not like really lurid. It isn't like leer at the the toplessness of her. No, 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 absolutely not. And an intention is everything. And so like again, there's like the reaction you're supposed to be having to everything in evil dead too. He was just a more assured filmmaker at that point. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It just, it, it stands out. It, it, the scene stands out in both movies, particularly in the remake and, and not in a good way. Right. Because they need a digital artist. It is like, yeah, that's CGI vine that's going up there. Like that took hours of rendering and everything, rotoscoping. So you're like, that costs some money. It is really strange. And, um, yeah, and you're right. Sam Raimi is not the kind of filmmaker to go out to offend people and shock people. He's not like William Freakin in that kind of regard. He's not going to put something out there just to get a reaction. Um, not saying anything negative about William Freakin. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. But 
some of the choices he's made in things like like uh, Bug or Killer Joe, like he's doing that to get a reaction out of the audience. Absolutely. Well, I mean, and that's what I mean. That's when it comes down to intention. That it's like there are reactions. Raimi is chasing and like he wants to shock you at some points and but that's different than offend and even if that had been the intention look that's okay too if a filmmaker wants to put something in the movie and it's a very divisive moment but then for them to you know to put their foot down and say like i stand behind that choice and for this reason that's also different but again that's not what Raimi did almost immediately he was walking back on it and just going like yeah if i had it to do over would not put that scene in the movie yeah and this movie kind of doubles down on more violence because they get mia back to the uh uh cabin and she's freaking out super hard like it is very uncomfortable seeing um seeing the actress is like really just like wants to get the hell out of there but then david finds that their pet dog is dead and it's it's really upsetting because then we see a flash of what david imagines that uh what was it that uh grandpa yeah and mia's taking a claw hammer to it i'm like oh yeah. i'm glad that we don't and see- i know you know this about me so so thank you thank you for selecting this film to talk i about. totally forgot about that i'll be honest <laughs> no, it's okay you know you know what you know what it was fine because it was like I, honestly speaking of the hills have eyes there's a much more upsetting moment in that remake that, that that's that, that one's a tougher hang this one's okay because it's so clearly not a real dog yeah. that it was like i i could handle it it was it was fine but this is the stretch of the movie i mean how quickly we jump from hey mia's not well to like hey but there might be something else going on here where it felt like man i think this is your second act is she's had this encounter in the woods she comes back no one believes her she hits a point where she's like, do I believe me? Am I sure that's what I saw, that that's what happened out there? Like, that feels like the tension, the rising tension of the second act. Because the other thing about the movie is, although there are, you know, I, I keep saying how amazing the effects are, it's it's true. But at a certain point, the movie has a, a really hard time one-upping itself. It's kind of played its hand, and it's done so very early into the film. It's shown you its whole entire bag of tricks. So, you know, in some of the original Evil Dead movies, you, you're on this ride of like, like, oh my god, that's so funny. Oh my god, that's so gross. Oh shit, that's kind of creepy. Oh, and now we're laughing again. There, and there's a ramping up to the insanity of it. With the, with the remake, it's kind of like you get the first big gory set piece and you go, oh shit, that's nasty. And then the next set piece comes and you're like, oh, this is really gross too. And then the next one, and you're like, yeah, this is all, this is, that, it's still gross. <laughs> and then it's just, it's kind of at that same pitch. Once it hits it, it just kind of coasts along at that same pitch for for the rest of the movie. I I wish it had a few other tricks up its sleeve. And I think this is a way that, like like I said, it could have done a better job of sort of ramping thing things up. Um, it just it ties into what I said about the very first act of the movie that this is the part that they could have gone further with. I mean, what like the, yeah, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to repeat myself, but this is the second act is Mia coming back and having this experience that no one else believes. The other characters trying to figure out what the hell's going on while these demons continue to fuck with her. That like 
oh, man. And then to just really, really ramp up to just an, a balls out finale where you're seeing shit you never imagined you would see in a studio movie, which is how a lot of this feels. But again, a little too early. It really leaves them nowhere to go. No. And the fact that like, first off, like, when the dog dies, I literally thought I thought about you. I'm like, oh no, oh god, this is <laughs> Yo, terrible. Tim joke. doesn't like me. <laughs> <laughs> Are you mad at me? Like I just felt like, oh god, no. I'm like, oh, if I really wanted to fuck with you, I would say like, we're watching the Will Smiths. I am legend. Then we'll, I could really mess you up. I'm like, but that's that's if I was being torturous, <laughs> uh, because I wouldn't put anybody in there, especially somebody who's so sensitive about animal cruelty. But and then with this, like. I think the biggest gag or the biggest set piece that this movie is known for was given away in the trailers with the box cutter. Yes, absolutely. And what a great trailer. I forgot to say. I mean, like I did – that was – you know, hearing they were doing the remake and being a little ambivalent about it. But like I remember being really impressed. Are are you talking about the The box cutter? Yeah. Yes. That that, like – just the trailer made me feel that icky. It was just like, wow, okay. If nothing else, they are – going for it and if they put that in the trailer can you imagine and uh, it turns out no i mean it's it's that it's other versions of of that yeah because after david wants to go confront mia about the the dog um mia's in the shower and she's literally scolding herself with hot water um and i feel like david should have kicked in the door a little bit earlier i don't know i feel like you have been like it's high tense that situations and your sibling is not responding maybe kick in the door earlier but Eric is realizing, hey, this pop-up book is showing what's going going to happen. And then scolding hot water. I think I would have kept looking forward to see, all right, what can we expect next? And instead of going page by page, just like, let's skip to the end. Yeah, like, like, junk <laughs> abomination. Close the book. Like, hmm, all right, shit, we got to get out of here before we get to that uh, chapter 11. But... When they try, uh, David tries to get uh, Mia out of there in his Jurassic Park Jeep. Um, however, the the road in is flooded over, um, and which is which is different. I like that it's not just a bridge being taken out, right? Yeah. Um, and so they get back to the cabin, and that's when things starts to get really fucked up because they're trying to decide what they're going to happen. Natalie has like a line in this scene. Um, Hey. Yeah, you're still here. <laughs> but the tension is really hits a, a fever pitch because Mir just strolls in sh- with a shotgun in hand and you don't know what the hell's going to happen next. Yeah. And so, like, I, I, how do you feel about the fact that, like, David's kind of be like the Ash-like character of the situation and the fact that they bring back original audio from the movie when the demon comes flying into the cabin? See, I already I tipped my hand. This is what I was saying earlier. I don't think that stuff works. I there are a couple of callbacks to the original I'm fine with. When there's when we're literally taking lines of dialogue, deadite dialogue specifically, these versions of the deadites it incompatible is the word I keep coming back to. That the stuff that felt tonally appropriate for the Raimi movies, it just it just feels wrong here i don't know it takes me out of it a little bit but it was was this not an issue for you are you okay with it i'm fine with it because like i guess it's just one i would just have to chalk it up like oh it's a nice nod to it like like, if you go into this fresh you'll just take it on face value and if you're a fan you just go oh 
all right. It's not one of those things where like they drop a reference and only, and it's so like deliberate that anybody else who doesn't know it will be sitting in the theater scratching oh, their heads like, what yeah, no, I don't. On? I, I'm not talking about like a moment where there's a couple in the kitchen making coffee and she's like. Hey, babe, can you give me some sugar? Like I, that, I would be like, what are you doing? <laughs> I don't mean like, I, I don't mind that it's, that there's callbacks in the dialogue. Some of them are pretty subtle. I mean, specifically with the deadites, that just their whole, the way they speak, that in the Raimi movies, it walks this fine line between creepy and absurd, that it's, it's as funny as it is creepy a lot of the time. Here, because again, because the rest of the movie is so earnest, I think a lot of the Deadite stuff, like I smell your filthy soul, like all of that stuff, it feels hokey in a way that the rest of the movie is trying so hard not to be. So, and the other thing is like, that's what I was saying about the thing that sounds really shitty that this movie is, works so well when no one's talking that. It's because Fetty Alvarez, I think, is a really strong visual storyteller. And it's not just the cinematography in this, which is is really, really good, but just the way he uses the camera to tell the story. Some of this stuff is really impressive. And there are moments where I just feel like that stuff's already doing so much of the heavy lifting here that you kind of you kind of cheapen the moment when you throw in this this other thing, a lot of the deadite stuff feels really unnerving. And then she speaks and I'm out. I'm just out. It takes me, it takes me right out of it. And another example of this, even though it's not deadite related, her freaking out in the car right before she crashes in the woods, like that whole sequence, everything I need to know I'm seeing and she is giving me with her performance. And then they cheapen it by having her literally scream the words, what the fuck am I doing? What am I doing? What's wrong with me? You were giving me that already. And it's like, and there's a lot of that in the movie where it was just like, the visual storytelling was on point. This was working. You, you don't need to, you don't need to go this extra step with it. So it's true with a lot of the dialogue between characters and especially with the deadites where I just thought like, especially in this version of evil dead, there was a, there was like kind of a really great less is more quality to some of this stuff. At least that's how it starts. And then it's like, they just can't help themselves. Yeah. It's, it's curious. But you think of, you could have had her like just speaking in tongues and just hitting the steering wheel. And that would have been fine. Like you didn't have to like, you could have just been screaming and everybody would get, you know what her head That's what I mean. Yeah. 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 Um, maybe they felt obligated to have Deadite like dialogue in there. More alliteration now thinking about it. Um, and I'm just like. Maybe. But then if if that's the case, and I do, I actually do see that. I understand that. Like doing a little bit more. The movie's working so hard to separate itself in other ways. I, I feel like maybe in that way as well or maybe there's just something about because it sounds i don't just mean because it's the same words that because it sounds like the way it was in the other films and i think they actually do at some points yes where again it's just look it tonally it was of a piece with what sam raimi was doing that's not what fetty alvarez is doing in this movie it really stands out yeah i mean it is curious here, like, I guess, like, but also, like, a lot of Dead Eye dialogue, it's, like, like, 
how do we make fun of the exorcist? Like, your mother sucks cocks in hell. Blah! And a lot of the Dead Eye dialogue is here in the same way in this one. Because, like, your sister's getting raped in hell. Blah! And I'm like, alright. Like, yeah, that that's kind of disturbing. But it's also a little juvenile. And I, I get that's what the Dead Eyes are going for. To psychologically fuck with you before they physically attack you. Um... And, and maybe you're right that it's kind of been, like, maybe the visuals would just... I mean, like, I agree with you. The visuals on this movie is so on point. I mean... Fede Alvarez still made my favorite movie of 2016 with Don't Breathe, and that movie has barely any dialogue in there. Right. And the dialogue we do have, like, the explanation near the, the third act, the second act going into the third act and, like, what the villain's intention is. <laughs> it is not his strong suit. It's, like, it's not even, it's, it, I don't know how much of it is the ideas themselves, but definitely, like, dialogue is not his forte. Um and I think because the whole psychological fucking with the victims isn't as big an aspect of the remake overall, that it's another reason that some of that dialogue doesn't totally land. And I, listen, I may be like, I may be in the minority on this. Other people may not care at all. And if it works for you, that's, that's great. And I actually, I think the comparison to The Exorcist is actually, that's, that's really apt. That's a great comparison. But I, I feel it's like I can feel what the dialogue is supposed to make me do. Like they want me to kind of go like oh, my jaw drop and go, oh, my God. <laughs> but that that wasn't how I felt. I was just like, oh, shit, that seems a little <laughs> out of place. OK, like like I feel like it's just tag every sentence with just yelling out bitch. Just like like you feel like it's like a Jesse from Breaking Bad. Like we want to sound tough and like really salacious. So we're going to we're going to really hammer home and think like, what's the most worst things we could say to somebody to make them really uncomfortable. Okay. This is what we're going to say. But going back to the cinematography, how do you feel about the fact that this is shot in widescreen rather than the taller frame of one eight five? Like, do you think like it's, it's too jarring compared to the other movies in the series? Not at all. I mean, if anything, it's like, look, I'm actually really in favor of anything it wants to do to separate itself. And I remember being really wowed by the opening shot of not the prologue, but well, actually that also the, the opening shot is actually really good. But when we move into the present day, you were talking about that shot of the car in the woods. And because that's such a signature part of the original where, you know, the branches hitting the camera mm -hmm. as the camera travels above that car, like, well, how do you do a different take on that? I love the way this starts with that expansive shot and it's upside down and the way it, it tracks the car and then shifts into the proper perspective. I love that. I love that they open it up in that way and it does make them feel more isolated. And so anything this movie wants to do to establish its own identity, I am completely in favor of. And I remember when the trailer came out and, you know, uh, how many people were upset that it's like, well, that's not Evil Dead. There's no ash and it's not funny. And it's like, wow, yeah, because Evil Dead 2, and well, honestly, it's actually more Army of Darkness. Like, that's the one where Ash is a character you get a little bit of the flanderization of him yeah. in, in the third movie. The characterization gets a little broad. And that's the version of Ash that pop culture remembers. That's definitely the one that's on the TV show. And I like Army of Darkness. I, I like the show. But um, but I'm just saying, like, if, if, 
if the jarring thing about the original Evil Dead is how straightforward it is, then Army of Darkness is sort of the other extreme for me. But because that version of Ash has so completely supplanted, you know, the original film. It's so weird, right? That like to have a big franchise where the first movie is not the that's not like the gold standard or the one that's the most ubiquitous. Right. Like it, it's pretty unique in that way. Like Friday the 13th also kind of the same thing. But um but then so like this has this really unique opportunity to both be true to the spirit of that original film and also feel new for a lot of people who regard the series as this other thing because of Ash, because of the more heightened tone it started to take on that um, it's just, yeah, it's in this really unique position to be like, no, we are honoring what came before and also presenting it in a way that feels brand new. And I do kind of think that's sort of the ideal thing you're looking for in a remake where it's, it's not just like an uninspired rehash of a lot of familiar elements with maybe a a slightly more flashy veneer on the whole thing, but to truly say like, no, we're going to take the very basics of this concept and then we're going to, we'll use that as the foundation, but then we're going to build this entirely new structure on top of it. We're going to make this our own. That That's a pretty good way to approach stuff like this. And so the visuals of this, that's a huge part of it. And I, it's, it's one of the main things the movie has going for it. Like I said, I mean, this movie is dirty in a way that feels tangible. This is not Hollywood dirty. This is like when this is over, you feel like you need to take a shower. And the, so I, I'm a huge fan of the visuals in this movie. Right. And like, at first, like I had a little bit of problem with because like, all right, you're shooting a widescreen. That's fine. I love the format. But they're using so many long lenses and so many and close-ups and it's just a lot of fall off. And I always think like you have a widescreen format. Why are you shooting everything in close-up? I think that's kind of redundant, but that's the traditionalist in me. I recognize that. But it definitely makes it a very claustrophobic movie because of that. And you feel very isolated within the cabin itself. And you're right. Like, we're talking about, like, just doing the same thing, but, like, a new coat of paint. I think it's the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Like, sure, you change a few things. Oh, 100%. But it is just... That is one of of the worst ones for me. Not just because I, I have a lot of affection for the original franchise, but because it's the very worst thing any movie can be, remake or otherwise, it's boring. And I've made the joke before on uh, on one of my podcasts, which is like, it's really ironic that, you know, a movie that's all about like, don't fall asleep is so good at putting <laughs> me to sleep. Like it's, it, it is a really, it just, it brings nothing to it. And that's the very worst thing. One of these things can be is and to feel and that's what makes them the difference between the ones that feel cynical and the ones that feel like at least they were made like the the filmmaker's heart was in the right place even if it doesn't totally work a lot of people do not like that friday the 13th remake and of all of the platinum dune stuff that's the one i'm most okay with because even if it doesn't totally work it feels like it was at least made by people who loved those movies and maybe they didn't love the same things about um i did and maybe we have different ways of reading certain aspects of it but there was like a it felt like there was a sincere effort to you know try and capture a little bit of that magic 
the, the Nightmare on Elm Street was just like, I, I mean, it, it's like somebody, a friend of them told them the plot of the first <laughs> one at some point, And then it was like, and here's our best approximation of it. And there are a couple of, you know, visually some cool things in that movie. But when you think of like, like I said, I think a lot of horror movies are, are better served by a lower budget. But if you're going to do a great big budget horror movie, Nightmare on Elm Street is a franchise where you really get to dig in and have some fun and and really play with a lot of the the imagery and the dream world and all of that stuff. And so even on that front, it was like, yeah, you've got some nice slick looking sequences in here, but the lack of imagination, it's just like that's even in the worst Nightmare on Elm Street movie in the original franchise there are it, there's at least one moment in all of them where you're kind of like, oh wow, look at that. That's that's pretty cool. And imagination will trump budget. You know, like any. T- it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how expensive the movie was. You can feel the lack of imagination all over that nightmare remake. And it's like, and you know what? It's probably important to keep stuff like that in mind. As hard as I'm being on certain aspects of this movie, um, there. There really is a lot I do admire about this one, and particularly in comparison to, you know, some of these, some of the other less inspired remakes. Fetty Alvarez definitely loved this stuff, and he definitely had a point of view on it. And maybe, you know, you're there are people out there that are more enthusiastic about his approach than I am. Maybe there are people that are are less enthusiastic about what he did, but the dude definitely had a point of view. Right. It feels like I agree with you that the Nightmare on Elm Street remake should be prescribed to Insomniacs. I feel like that would actually be quite helpful. Um, I mean, like you have Rorschach as your Freddy Krueger, like you think that'd be kind of creepy, but it's it, he's un, underserved by the lack of imagination in that movie. And you're right, every Nightmare on Elm Street movie has a creative moment to it, even if it gets freaking Looney Tunes where Freddy Krueger is pushing a bed of spikes into the middle of a road, so somebody lands uh-huh. on it. Like, okay, that is dumb. Or the flying semen that gives him dreams powers in the end of that movie. Like, <laughs> but you remember that? I can't remember a lick of thing from the Friday re- uh, the Nightmare on uh, Elm Street remake. And the Friday the 13th remake, the entire series is lather, rinse, repeat. I don't know how it could get really too hard on that movie being remade because, you know what, it was pretty much the same movie over and over again. Like, I've always described the Friday the 13th movies as, like, White Castle food. You know what you're getting into. It's not great, but it could be satisfying when you're in the mood for it. Yes, absolutely. It's probably the most consistent of those big 80s slasher franchises. But you know what the the Nightmare remake reminds me of is I, it's a very similar problem where it's there is just a real humdrum dullness to the characters. And it reminds me that, you know, the reason the first Halloween movie is great is not because of Michael Myers. It's, I mean, he is great. Uh, that's like my favorite of the, the slasher icons. And, but that movie doesn't work because we love Michael Myers. The movie works because we love Laurie Strode. Yeah. That's why that movie is dynamite. And 
in the original Nightmare on Elm Street, maybe not as successfully as Halloween, but still, Nancy, that's a character you invest in. And even like on Rogue's Gallery, we've been going back through the Friday the 13th franchise, and those early entries are not ones I dip into very often. And so I, there was, I was a bit surprised about like, wow, I actually really like the characters in these. This is not the cliche that it becomes later. This is, this feels different. There is an effort here, and it makes everything else that follows work so much better. And so, you know, like, even when it comes to the Evil Dead remake, like, as much as this movie does right, I think at the end of the day, although it is a very smart decision to not have Ash or an Ash equivalent character in this film, that is still an awfully big, the hole you have to fill somehow. And like, you know, again, not a similar character, but like there does have to be something because it just, what I walked away from this feeling like was, Man, I admire the attempt. I do. And this could have been a lot worse. Um, but the same way that Halloween is, it's as much about Laurie Strode as it is Michael Myers, that like, that for me, it just doesn't feel a whole lot like an Evil Dead movie without Ash. Mm-hmm. That the, you know, the Deadites are cool, but uh, Deadites alone, it turns out, do not carry a film. Right. But it's not like without a lack of trying. I mean, at this point in the remake, sorry, we're getting back to the movie here. I, I apologize for that uh, tangent that left us in the middle of nowhere right there. But so Nia attacks uh, Olivia by vomiting all over her. And I literally like gagged watching this. And I'm like, oh, that's just wrong. It's tough. The little bits that like get stuck in her hair. <laughs> it's a great detail. Oh, oh my God. Um, and I know the actress, I know Jane Levy said she felt terrible about having to do that to the other actress. And I just, and it, it is, yeah, it was one of those things where I was like, I instantly went to like, oh yeah, like trying to picture that day on set and how you shoot that. And it's just like the audacity to have to ask for another take. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I'm just reminded of like alien when they had to do the chest burster scene and like, huh, they have seven cameras running and everybody's getting ready. Like if they're at a Gallagher uh, concert, it's like, Hmm, I wonder if this is going to get messy or not. Like, how do yeah. you do a take two? Like, uh, like you can't do that probably the same day. Like, how much do you... No, I mean, this is one of the things I admire about the movie is the commitment to practical effects because, and I'm sure even at, at the level you and I are working at, I mean, we're both well aware that the second you introduce any kind of practical effect, even something just as simple as fake blood, you have just doubled or tripled the amount of time you're going to be shooting that day because if you do have to do something more than once everything's got to be cleaned up a costume has to be changed and like the reset is substantial for just something as simple as like a a couple of spritzes of fake blood so to have set pieces on this scale and to not just and to resist that temptation of look it'll be cheaper and it will be faster to do this digitally oh man that's it's just I'm blown away by so much of this about just the logistics of it and thinking about um, the production. And I know like, you know, because of how harrowing the making of the original films was Bruce Campbell sent an email out to the whole cast to be like, hey, 
you have no idea what you're in for. So let me try and break this down for you because you will probably never make another movie like this ever again in your entire career. And just like the, the physical demands that it put on the cast. And I'm pretty sure I remember like Fetty Alvarez telling a story about Jane Levy at some point, just having a full on like breakdown. And after they had called cut and everyone else left the set and she was just sitting there covered head to toe in gore, just all curled up. And, you know, when someone approached her and said like, are you, what's going on? And she's like, I, I really just need to be alone. And so they just left her and, you know, as everyone else filed out in this horrible, like, you know, the, the cabin set surrounded by all of this viscera and whatever. And just, she just had to sit there. She just had to compose herself because she was, she was having a really, really, really tough time that it's, it's, man, it's, it's crazy, but it's, like I said, I admire it. I admire the commitment to, to that part of the production. Yeah, I mean, like, for the most part, I've done digital blood if I had to blow up somebody's head because it's just easier that way. And because, like, all right, I don't have to reset this. And plus, I'm shooting at my school. So, you know what? Like, all right, I'm not going to paint the wall of, like, the stairway (laughs) and fake blood. And the RA comes wondering, like, um, what's going on here? But the one time, like, a few times I've used real blood where I had to, like, I made a, like, a 15-second short film where... A man cat calls a woman. However, she's a witch, so she puts a spell on him. And his his genitals grow up to a giant size and they explode. And she's hit in the face with blood. First take, she's hit and just a little bit, and he's like, "Shit, that's not what we needed." So we, we delicately clean her up, and then like second time, not not what we we're looking for. We're like crap, we like mix up more blood and just threw so much at her. I'm like, okay. Three takes. This is much we're going to get here. Otherwise, we're going to have to change the costume and come back a different day. And yeah. so, and the fact that it's so much blood, like gallons upon gallons of here, it's like not just a little spurt, but like, no, we have like fire hoses worth of blood being spilled here. It just makes it more uncomfortable because you don't see that very often. And it's done with for such a different effect than what they do in the original series where maybe definitely more so in two and three where it is so overblown and so exaggerated you're supposed to kind of start chuckling at it just like oh my god look at this this is not that this is excessive in a way that it's it's just it's really it it's meant to unsettle you that the the barf gag in one of the earlier movies, it would have been done for laughs. This is like, oh my God, I'm going to be, I can't even look at this. It's very uncomfortable here. Like, yeah, like the original Evil Dead, it's going on the same like kind of tone, like Robocop where Kenny getting shot up in the boardroom, like, and especially in the extended cut, like that one, you're laughing at how many times he's getting shot. And then he says, somebody call a paramedic while he's like literally in pieces. It transcends disturbing because of how exaggerated it is. Yeah. And so Eric gets the smart idea to lock her into the basement. And uh, what was it? Olivia decides to go clean herself off. However, we find out that she's possessed. Eric goes to check on her, but she's decided to carve up her face and decide to attack him. And I guess there's got to be some digital effects has to be involved here with the these kind of applications, at least 
augmentation with it. It can't just be just a practical face application here, do you think? Mm. I don't know. I, you know, um, the big takeaway for me with this scene was like, as amazing as all of these effects are, the most effective moment in this sequence is when he's approaching her and she has her back to him and you just see her arm making the sawing motion and you hear it. Mm. As good as these effects are, that that is the toughest moment in the entire sequence. That is fucked. That is that's so gruesome. Oh, and, and, or even like even before that, when she recognizes something bad is going to happen, and we have that low angle shot as she runs out of the bathroom towards the camera and then stops there in her feet. And then yeah. get dragged back. Oh, that's unnerving. Oh, and the oh yeah, that's a really that's an unsettling moment too. And then like the losing control of her faculties, like mm. that. Just the there some of those added little details. Like I said, yeah. Again, this is this is trying to mess with you in a much different way than the original series. Yeah, and so. I guess Eric is happy that he went to Pearl Vision to get those kind of very thick glasses to protect himself from the syringe. But imagine you're David and Natalie walking in the bathroom and you find, like, Eric has just clobbered in his girlfriend's head with the porcelain of the toilet. Like, how do you explain that? This is crazy. This is another moment where the suspension of disbelief, I was just like, I don't know. I really fully expected this scene i think even in my memory i like rewrote it where it's like oh and this is the part where then now they're gonna lock him up because obviously he just killed his girlfriend they're not gonna believe but it it, no it's just like oh demons you say huh (laughs) (laughs) it just yeah they're all of these missed opportunities for more tension between the actual between the human characters uh and so well, David tends to Eric, and Eric confesses, like, "Yeah, I may have, um, I may have caused this to happen. Kind of my bad." Um, Mia lures Natalie into the cellar by doing the deadite uh, uh, two-step by playing coy, <laughs> and oh, it is so freaky. Where turns around and attacks Natalie. Natalie tries to escape, and. You knew it was going to happen as soon as she sat down. She took one step on that stair, and the the stair itself nearly buckles underneath her weight. And so when Mia attacks Natalie, Natalie grabs a box cutter to defend herself. We have the famous moment from the trailer where she literally turns her tongue into like a fork by cutting her own tongue with a box cutter. And you're just like, oh my god! You know, and the first thing that I would expect to happen when you get to the end and Mia comes back when she's no longer possessed. I mean, how is that shot? Like her appearance turns normal again. And then the very next thing should be her hand going over her mouth going, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) What happened? She just sounds like Matt Damon for the second half of true grit. Like what happened to my tongue? Why do I have, why am I having problems here? Oh man. And, of course, Mia has puked blood into Mia's... Uh, Mia's done it to Natalie's mouth, so we know Natalie's on the chopping block. Um, however, we do have the iconic of putting the chains and nailing the place shut, and so she's not getting out of the cellar no matter what. Um, but we get the kind of a new explanation here where we have new ways to kill the Deadites, not just bodily dismemberment, but we can... Uh, we could bury them alive or we can set them ablaze 
even though we can't set the book on fire. Um, at the same time, Natalie becomes convinced that her arm is infected, so she amputates it with an electric cutting knife, and the gore continues. Again, very, very, very good scene. It's just, a, but at this point, this is where it really starts feeling like variations on a theme, like some version of something we've already seen at this point. It's just, it, it's not ramping up in the way I, and it's not that I want it to go like further. It's like I was saying earlier, I, I just, I think they show their hand too early. I, See the puns, Tim. I can't do this. It's just wherever uh, I go, puns <laughs> follow. So don't feel bad. That is my magical power. Well, that's we'll blame it on that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it just I think a more gradual working up to stuff like this would make it more shocking. But at this point, I mean, it's like it's a great effect. But I've already I've already been properly grossed out. You know how? Okay, so when I was a kid and I said watching Evil Dead Two, it had this amazing. Um, quality of feeling like I had no idea what I was going to see next. And that's because of the way it, it doles out its imagery and how it ramps up the absurdity with this one. By this point in the movie, I felt pretty comfortable with like, I think I know what I'm going to see next. And I, I have some idea of how it's going to look and how much blood there's going to be. And like, I, I don't know. It's not that I was, you know, totally checked out or anything, but I don't not not as invested in this as I would have liked to have been. That's fair. I mean, cause I think one of the earliest images I saw of this movie is of Mia poking her head out from the cellar. I mean, that's one of the promotional images that recognizable, like, Oh, that's an evil dead movie. That's an evil dead moment. Of course you would want to uh, steer into that. Yeah. Um, but, but then of course the possessed Natalie shows up with a nail gun and, Okay, so that part, again, a, ma- a great, great sequence. It's all shot and it's all, I was going to say executed. Now I'm doing this on purpose. <laughs> um, it's just, it's on a technical level, all of this is unbelievably impressive. And then when like the crowbar comes into play and just the way they shoot some of this stuff, it's unreal. It It really is. It's just they showed me too much too fast. And now the stuff that should be making me like want to hide behind my couch or like look away from the screen. It's just, it's not having the same visceral impact because at this point the whole movie has been so visceral. Yeah. I mean, like, the fact that she, that Natalie tries to turn herself into a centipede before attacking everybody. You're just wondering like, what is really going on here? And, I feel bad because, like, David, in order to stop her, grabs a shotgun and blows off her other hand that's not um, possessed. But that's when the <laughs> Deadite decides to peace out and then she dies from her own wounds. Like, okay, that's screwed up. This was this was an uh, – it, 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 yes, it's a horrific idea. The only thing that was unintentionally funny about it to me, and maybe I'm a monster, was when she – yeah, when it – when it's her again and she goes <laughs> because of the level of carnage that's been inflicted on her when she goes, why does my face hurt? <laughs> like, oh, well. I don't know. It's just accidentally kind of funny. Oh, I mean, maybe David should have given her a hand. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you see, that's a bad one right there. And, but, like, here's something I didn't expect to, the movie to get. Like, the movie gets really Old Testament with, like, a burning bush that stop, that happens outside. 
And, yeah. And I'm just like, okay, this is strange. But this is when David decides to, he incinerates Olivia's corpse, like dismembers Natalie's body, and then he decides to burn down the cabin with Mia in it. However, the Deadite, um, but also like this one moment, we do cut to Mia downstairs, um, just laughing to herself, and she's just so pleased with herself. And it's like one of the most frightening images in the entire movie where she's so pleased that she's tearing everybody apart psychologically. But in order to get back at David, that she starts singing a song that they've known since childhood. So he decides to bury her alive. But that means he has to go get her with a, with some tranquilizer like uh, that uh, um, Olivia brought with her. And this gets into a very suspenseful sequence because it's just low. It's a long, slow walk into the basement knowing that she's going to pop out anywhere and eventually does. And I don't know. I think... Maybe I find this kind of unintentionally goofy when David becomes a rag doll in the basement. And he literally is just like getting thrown out, which is very Ash-like, I know. But maybe the fact that everything's been so earnest up to this point that he becomes... Somebody in a YouTube video dubbed this protagonist throwing. Where like... The, oh, the, sure. The demon, the bad guy should just kill the hero. But no, they're going to throw yes. him around first. The evil Terminators do this all the time. Yes. Yeah, right, yes. Instead of just stabbing you, I'm going to throw you across the room so we can prolong this action scene. Just enough for me to get to my grenade launcher to stop you. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so... Hey, I think you dropped that. Whee! <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, Mia just tries to drown David, but David is saved in the last second by Eric, who is now thoroughly dead, all the nails sticking out of him. And David just kind of put. This is what I mean about how they kept him around longer than I expected to. And being like, since he's the one that accidentally unleashed all of this, the movie sees to it he is properly punished for that. He, boy, oh boy, do they put him through the ringer. Right. And it's, there's a that famous interview that Sam Raimi did in the late 1980s, like the rules of horror. And the first rule he has for horror is that the innocent must suffer. Yeah. And the fact that he's the inciting into this, this movie, he totally suffers. Um, and so he, now that Mia's um, been knocked out, he decides to bury her alive. I mean, it's such a freaky moment when Mia wakes up and starts to taunt him while she has a plastic bag over her face. Yeah. That's really uncomfortable. I don't know how you feel about that. No, it's great imagery. And that was another thing where I was just thinking about, like, man, how'd they shoot this? Because it's just that actress. I how she's amazing and just i mean separate from the performance itself which i think is really strong but just the willingness to go through with all of this that they actually did bury her that that that's real they did that that and just and then where this how the finale plays out and what she gets subjected to just that she was game for all of it and like oh my god so much respect yeah and you just wonder like why is she not a bigger name? Why is she not like starring in so many other big horror movies or just big movies in general? The fact that she's such a willing participant to in the filmmaking process, you feel like, why is she? She is a superhero because she seems like the kind of person who's willing to be suspended in a harness for 20 hours a day in order to get a shot. But <laughs> so, yeah, it, like how she's like, yeah, your mother's like, it is the old exorcist claim, like, oh, your mother's waiting for you in hell. Like it is, it is old hat, but 
the fact that she plays it so straight with the plastic bag on, yeah, it's really uncomfortable. But he buries her. The flaming tree goes out. He's able to defibrillate her with uh, a battery. And she's exercised a demon. But did you believe it really was gone? I guess I did just because they had made such a to-do about the, like you said, the, the, the burning bush and the burial. And there's a lot of steps involved here. I mean, I guess I wouldn't have been that surprised if it had gone either way. But it was like, I think if I'm trying to, I don't really remember on my first viewing, maybe I was more skeptical. On this viewing, if anything, my memory of it was like, oh, I think she comes back earlier. I think there's still a lot of movie like she becomes the protagonist for like the whole final part of the film that I remember David was out of there at a certain point, but it's like, Oh shit, no, it's over. This is the end. Like this is it's so yeah, I actually it was expecting the turn to happen much earlier than it did. Right. And so Mia is fine that she's exercised the demon and they're about to get out of there. But David says, I'll be right back. Uh, to go get the keys, but that's when uh, Eric, the dead-eyed version of him, attacks him. And in order to protect Mia, he throws her out of the cabin and decides to blow up the cabin with them in it in order to stop uh, Eric from getting them. But five souls have been sacrificed, which means the abomination can happen, leading to the skies opening and raining blood. And as a massive metalhead as I am, I just wish, like, this is when you had the Slayer needle drop. This is you set it up perfectly, but I get why you don't do that. Luckily, somebody on YouTube did that for me. But the abomination does uh, wake up, and it was this weird, like an androgynous creature that decides to attack Mia, and we finally get the climax of it with her with the chainsaw and everything. How do you feel about how this movie concludes? I love how bug nuts it gets here. I love like the raining blood that it's just like it, it, all of that. I really, really love. I wish the design for that final, <laughs> it's like the final boss um, <laughs> that it had been a little bit more impressive or memorable that like, yeah, mostly what I remember about it is how unmemorable it is. Like the lack of features in the, I, I don't know. I wish that had looked a little bit cooler, but the sequence itself, I think a lot of this is really, really, really good. I could have done without her one-liner at the end, but fine. It's that type of movie. I'm sure other people love it. I, I don't have a huge problem with it. But and that last, that last kill is, even if it feels a little fan servicey, is still it's great. Yeah, it would have been something if the abomination was exact replica of Mia. Like say if it was so anything, just something a little bit more creative. It should have like it, it would it would have been really cool like to walk out of this with like I mean that that being the iconic creature or one of the iconic visuals from the movie, and instead I, it's like you almost forget that part even happens. I I had totally forgotten that creature, and like and it's not that long ago I saw this movie. I mean I saw it the year it came out, so like. I, oh God, Tim! No, this is depressing. Is it? Is it so weird? 2013 feels like yeah, that was a few years ago. <laughs> it's, oh. Oh man. It, I guess it's been a minute, but yeah, I really I did not remember that 
uh, that last that whole last part at all. I think I just had another gray hair sprout out when he said that. I'm like, I hope you're happy. I know, about that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And so the fight of it is it's fine. I mean, like the fact that she uh, she's pinned underneath the jeep at one point, she literally tears her own hand off. Like, ouch. Yeah. Um, and sure, it is a it's a engineered fist pump moment when she says like like eat this motherfucker and she buries this chainsaw into the abomination's mouth and cuts it up into pieces and of course the the abomination melts back into the ground raining stops and the movie ends but then of course we have the post credit scene with ash just turns to the camera saying groovy and i imagine it was literally like he had five minutes when he was not shooting a scene in burn notice and they just put him in the closet and shot that I didn't need it. I mean, it's like, I guess I know a lot of fans feel like that's him giving his stamp of approval on the movie. It's fine. I don't, it's, yeah. I know, you know, you think about the ending of some of the other movies though, and how absolutely, I mean, they really dial it up to 11 and I can appreciate that this movie's trying to do a similar thing in a different way, that it's not about the giant monster that comes crashing up through the floor, you know, that like, we're going to go a different, it's going to feel bigger than the rest of the film but we're going to try and approach that in a in a different way um but there is yeah i don't know like i said i love the setting of it i love the the blood i love all of that there is something just a little bit underwhelming about that that last battle right and apparently there was an alternate ending where after she defeats the abomination she's walking down the road and collapses with exhaustion she's found by a trucker and then she wakes up in a hospital and the camera just kind of pushes in on her while she wakes up and she looks kind of suspicious. So you wonder, like, is it really over or not? But yeah. I think going out on, like, the, I guess, happier note that all your friends and family are dead, but the sun's out. I guess that's the... Yeah, well, and then the other thing is, like, then there's that part where the doctor comes in and he's got, like, a piece of a tree branch in a plastic bag. And he's like, we found this inside of you. Do you want to explain? <laughs> and then it cuts to credit. <laughs> uh, you know what the – actually, though, you know what that just reminded me of is there is an extended cut of this movie that is – it's not like ridiculously hard to get a hold of, but it's it's not as accessible as I thought it was going to be. Um, but apparently it does improve on a lot of the things that we've been um, – complaining about that i think there maybe are some more character moments in there and that a lot of the, the um the, how the deadites work and the the rules of all of this a lot of that stuff connects a lot better or makes a lot more sense it's just i i would be i would be really curious to to see that version of the movie was that like a leaked work print version of the movie they did official. They, there is an official release. Like if you, I think I looked for it on Amazon, and I could get it shipped from like a third party seller. And just thought like for a movie I only kind of like. And I mean like, listen, I I I love your podcast, but like I'm not I'm not gonna I wasn't gonna buy it just for. That's totally for fair. This. I'm not, I do not besmirch you for that. <laughs> but so like I said, it's not impossible to find. It's just like, but it, you know, it's not an option when you rent this um, digitally like I did. Like that's, it's not only the theatrically released version. So um, just not as, um, not as accessible as a lot of other director's cuts or alternate versions of, of certain movies. 
it is curious because like I, I guess like none of the other movies are longer than 90 minutes like this is technically the longest one of it at like what was it like 92 minutes so maybe that yeah. was just like a mandate either by studio or Raimi or Tapper like yeah you can cut this down a little bit where maybe we wouldn't have so so many nitpicks this movie if it was a little longer like I get three act structure each act being 35 25 25 minutes 35 minutes of length that's fine it's easy structure to do that but maybe some exploration would have been warranted like if there's more scenes with Natalie why she's there maybe more she's a comfort and like that she's a buffer between Olivia and Eric to David like hey maybe they're not just a bad idea to maybe leave me here, me here if need be that could have given her more to do like if that's part of it like I would watch that I wouldn't mind the extra 10-15 minutes yeah I don't know like I said I'm curious I I would check it out um, but the, I was thinking about the running time too, where it was like, do I want to spend another 30 minutes in this world? I'm not sure that I do that. Like, I, I don't know that the, you know, the, I mean, when the ultimate edition of like Batman V Superman came out and people were like, no, you have to see this. It fixes so many issues. And I was like, listen, that movie's problem was not that it was too short. Like I, I do, I don't know that. Like I, you know, I'm sorry. And um, I know that's going to wind up being a very controversial statement, but um, it's kind of the same thing here, where it's like I understand then the the dilemma there of man, we're cutting some stuff that actually seems pretty essential, but also on the other hand, the same way that that snappy running time that brevity works so well for comedy, I think, you know, you have to make that same consideration in a a movie like this, where it's like, this is a pretty oppressive tone. This, like, it's just what I said. I'm not sure this is a world I want to spend two hours or more in 90 minutes get in get out that feels about right yeah and i I think brevity is a weird thing like even though we're being very verbose and we've talked longer than the movie itself but i feel like in movies brevity is a thing and sure i can sit down and watch 10 hours of a tv show if i really wanted to but it's such a strange thing with a movie maybe it's just how it's structured that yeah i can i love the extended cuts of lord of the rings but RoboCop is 97 minutes without credits, and it tells a lot of story in that in that amount of time. But like a lot of movies these days, like oh, they need to be three hours long, three and a half hours long. And sometimes I wonder, does it really need to be that? And the fact that this movie is 90 minutes, like yeah, I can could go a little bit longer. But the fact that it's 90 minutes, you're right, in and out, and you can get out. You leave the theater, you. You, you're in such a dour mood. You put the cure on as you drive home, and you're happy. <laughs> yeah, it depends on the movie. Like, uh, believe me, I, I there are plenty of like three hour movies that that fly by, and there are plenty of movies that are very heavy and also have a pretty sinister tone. That it's like, but you know, this this isn't that. Like, I'll hang with the girl with the dragon tattoo for you know two and a half hours, three hours, whatever. But like Fede Alvarez is not David Fincher. This is, and uh, this is an evil dead movie. So yeah, I don't know, but it's like, I don't think it has to be one or the other either. I think a lot of the things we were saying about the first stretch of the movie, there is a way to streamline it where the characters feel more consistent, where they pop a little bit more and you can still get in and out with a relatively brief 
running time. It's These are not mutually exclusive ideas. It's not like, well, listen, if you want your movie to have character development, obviously it's going to be over two hours long. I mean, of course that's horse shit. But it's like if there was just a, a more um, – there was a smarter way to put all of these elements in to play and still get this thing in at at ninety minutes for sure. Yeah, like I think of the movie Sinister. I, that's a movie like an hour and forty minutes long. That has character development in it, but also a lot of scares. It may have like maybe my favorite opening shot in any horror movie because it's just how horrific that movie how that movie opens. But yeah. So anyway, before we go on too long, uh, final thoughts on the Evil Dead remake. Oh boy. I mean, so I didn't like it as much as I remembered. It it didn't make the same impression it did on that first viewing. And even that, even the first viewing was like, it was better than I expected, but I didn't love it. I just thought it could have been a lot worse. And so there are a lot of horror remakes that I think are much worse than this one. Um, There are much worse versions of this movie that could have existed. But I also think there's a slightly better one and it doesn't involve rewriting a new movie or picturing a different movie there. It's because of the one that we have. It's, it's movies like this that are almost a little bit more heartbreaking where you can see the better movie that they are so close to where there is so much potential where all of the elements they're on the board they just need to be repositioned a little bit and um and that's how this feels to me but um still i i would still recommend this movie like it's still got a lot going for it and um just a really important first stepping stone for fetty alvarez who i think went on to bigger and better things i mean we'll see he kind of stumbled a little bit speaking of girl with the dragon tattoo that his last movie that it was is not awesome but he'll rebound he'll be fine um yeah so i like this i don't love it but what about you the the girl with the dragons and the spider webs and the dragon flies whatever the one that hell he made she's kicking things and there's hornets and sometimes fire yeah She's a girl. <laughs> oh, that's an unwieldy title. Okay. <laughs> you thought Doctor Strangelove had an unwieldy title. Um, no, I, I feel like that paid for his mortgage. Like that, like that paid for his children's school or something like that. That's how I, that's how I chalk up that movie. It was a studio gig. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed this. Uh, amongst the, the crop of the horror remakes that I was very cynical to, like the ones I enjoy, I enjoy. The ones I don't like, I I find them to be really deplorable or worse, boring. And this one, I find like it's a lot better. Like, yes, it is playing on similar beats of it, of the original movie. But the fact that they were wanting to do something a little different, like maybe the fact that it's trepidatious and being too different pulls it back. Like we said, like there's so much potential, like you could do so much more and maybe it's a little safe in some of the decisions. But some the choices they do make, like a lot of it being practical effects, I highly recommend that. And I don't know, maybe some people like if I was going to introduce somebody to Evil Dead, I would want to show the original. But there's some people that are going to today will just find it to be too cheesy or not, and then maybe yeah. they'll this is a easier pill to swallow. That's something I would have to balance. Like, all right, do I show them the re- remake? Do I show them the original? But at least I, if I had to, I have a remake that could be somewhat 
a a better choice compared to some some of the remakes if I had to show them to people. So yeah, I really enjoy it as a remake. I know that that's a weird asterisk, that's a weird qualifier to have of it, but I don't know. I guess amongst the movies that were made at the time, it's not that bad. I mean, it's either that or you had the other movies like how many Saw sequels was going on at that point. So I guess it could have been worse. But uh, Chris, like where can people follow you with your shows and what have you? Um, All of that stuff. It's on our website, 27thletterproductions.com. There will be a link to – I have a show called Rogues Gallery that has a heavier focus on horror movies. I have another podcast called Hey, Do You Remember? That's more of a nostalgia movies from our childhood type thing. Um, But uh, sort of putting a a larger focus on video content in the months ahead. So um, I have a web series that's about to come out. Um, I'm not sure when this episode is is posting. It's like the end of September, I believe. Oh, then I better keep my mouth shut. Okay. Uh, so we will we will not have released the date uh, for that yet, but it's it's coming soon. And so yeah, just all all of my stuff, all my social media links, all of it's at twenty seventh letterproductions dot com. That makes it a lot easier putting the show notes for the episodes together. I'll just put that link in there, and I don't have to like, all right, go to your Twitter, go to your Instagram, and drag all those links. Yeah, in no, there. all those links. It's all it's all up there. Very nice. And if people want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at Timothy Rooney two. My YouTube channel, Through the Lens Productions, that's youtube.com slash through the lens productions, through as if you're going through a window, and my Instagram at t rooney 1012 Plus, my other podcast, Please Rewind, the RF4RM Retro Show. It's very similar to this, but we talk about movies when it comes to their anniversaries. And according to this recording, the last one we just recorded, we just talked about Reanimator. I'm sure by the time you hear this episode, that episode's already been out um, because we did that for the 35th anniversary. And yeah, so I want to say, Chris, thank you for taking time by night to talk uh, the Evil Dead remake with me. Thank you for having me on, yeah. Uh, Of course, of course. And I will find a movie that we both enjoy a little bit more to talk about next time, so it's not like it's pulling teeth. I know, I feel terrible. I'm so sorry. I really, I thought like, oh, Tim suggested this because he he probably really, really likes this. And I I did not anticipate this was going to be my reaction. This was uh, kind of a surprise for me. And I know, I wish this had been a little bit more balanced. I'm sorry to any listeners that are upset about that so yeah next time <laughs> next time we'll pick something we're more enthusiastic about it's fine i'm just gonna cry myself to sleep tonight hope you're happy that's all I, I, that's your <laughs> fault and everything no i'm not going to um come back next time to continue to talk about geek and pop culture and we'll be speaking to you soon all right we can stop recording <laughs>